Hello, everybody, and welcome to Quick Change the Channel, a podcast where we look at adaptations of video games on the movie screen, on the TV screen, and talk about them. I'm Steampunk Link. I'm Emmy Zero, and uh, welcome into the loving arms of the Pax by Sonica. Yes. <laughs> Oh, folks, we'll just come right out and say it. We watched Street Fighter, the movie. Um, I watched it a few times uh, in the past 24 hours. I only watched it once, but I think that was enough. So <laughs> <laughs> I um, so have, had you seen this movie before? I'm guessing you must have, right? Yeah, I saw it as a kid and I saw it. I've seen it you know, a few times throughout my life. I watched it like a few years ago, I think. I've definitely seen it like within the last decade, let's say. I remembered a fair bit of it, but there were actually a lot of little things in the movie that I did not remember that I was either delighted or horrified by. Yeah, there's actually like a few big things I didn't remember from this movie. I saw this movie in theaters when I was a child. Uh, I think that I went with a friend of mine. I think his parents took us and also watched this movie. And I feel very bad in hindsight for that kid's parents. Uh, Sorry about that. You guys, wherever you are. Uh, <laughs> so there were things I don't remember about it. I, I know I watched it in college, but I was probably watching it with friends as we were just kind of laughing at it and also drinking a lot. So yeah, there's a lot I didn't remember about this movie. It's funny. Like, I definitely did see this movie when I was a kid. Um, and I remember being pretty disappointed with it. As a kid, I remember feeling like it didn't really feel very much like it had anything in common with the game. But watching it as an adult, I think it is in some ways one of the most delightfully campy video game movies, uh, especially from like this early early time period for game movies, where this was essentially like the second major video game movie adaptation that was made, I think. Uh, in America, at least. The, the first being Super Mario Brothers? Yeah, yeah, which came out like a year before this one. Was Double Dragon before or after this I one? I think Double Dragon was after this one. I think one of the things that was weird about the Double Dragon movie is that it came out long after Double Dragon had kind of stopped being a popular game franchise. Whereas the Street yeah. Fighter movie, they did actually manage to strike while the iron was hot. Yeah, it, so much so that like I'm, I'm almost surprised that they got like DJ and Cammy and T-Hawk in this movie, because those were pretty new characters to the Street Fighter universe at the time. Yeah, And like with DJ's character, you could almost think that maybe they, that was a last minute addition, but like Cammy and T-Hawk are main characters. So they they clearly wrote this with them in mind. Yeah, no, it's true. Uh, I will talk, I will have bits from this to, to probably pipe up with, as we go through the movie, but uh, there was a very good article uh, in the guardian from a couple years ago that I read in preparation for this. That was uh, essentially like a, a history of street fighter, the movie. One of the things it mentioned was the fact that originally when the director of this movie, Steven uh, D'Souza, who also wrote the movie. Yeah. Originally when he came up with, you know what the story was going to be. He had seven characters from street fighter in this because he thought that was the maximum number that the, the audience would be able to actually focus on. And then as they went further and further into production of the movie, Capcom kept pressuring him to add more characters from the games. You know, they're like, okay, I guess we can put this person in here. I guess we can put this person in here for like a line. 
And mm-hmm. you can kind of feel that, but I, I think everybody in this movie mostly feels about as superfluous as everybody else. So I don't really think it's that com- I don't think it's really that noticeable. Yeah. So I, I thought it might be fun to kind of start, you know, before we go into the, the breakdown of the whole movie. Yeah. Uh, to kind of talk about individual characters and like which characters we think worked and which didn't. Sure. Like, do you, sure. Is there a character that you think um, or, or any characters that you think were pretty good representations of their video game counterparts? So probably Vega, I guess. Yeah. Vega, Vega's look is on point and he doesn't really talk. So there's not really, uh, you know, a lot of issues with, with the characterization being off in that way. Mm -hmm. That's probably it. Honestly, like, I don't think my understanding is that even though, I think he's a very fun character in the movie and actually looks very on point. I'm pretty sure that the Zangief in the games is very different in like the way he's portrayed than, than the yes. guy in the movie is. So that one doesn't really count. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with you completely. I, I think that um, Vega might be like, I think the most accurate of any of the characters. And I think that it's because the actor who plays him, uh, Jay Tavare. I don't know how many, how much of his own stunt choreography he did, but you know, like he does the backflips and everything. He, yeah, he's a very physical actor, and he he does a very good job here. Mm-hmm. You really get the idea that like he saw the character in the game and was like, okay, I think I can do this, and and yeah, he did a pretty bang up job. I'm I'm really impressed. I bet he did actually do a fair bit of of his own like work on figuring out what that character's moves were going to be. Because one of the things that you do notice about this movie that apparently is borne out by what actually happened is that for the most part, nobody in this movie is really trying to emulate like the fighting style of the character they're playing from the game. Yeah. And apparently that is partially because the fight choreographer was not aware, had never seen the game and was not aware that the characters had different fighting styles in the game. So, so yeah, yeah. (laughs) So I will say one other character that I think was good, at least uh, at looking the part was Balrog. Mm -hmm. Like it's completely baffling to me that Balrog is a good guy in this movie because he's always depicted as one of the bosses and as a member of Bison's Shadow Law crime syndicate or whatever in the games. Uh But I will say the actor who played him, uh, Grand L. Bush, I think his name is. He's a dude who looks like a boxer. Like, I could actually have believed that that guy yeah. was a professional boxer before becoming an actor. Like, he, he does a good job at looking the part. The few times we actually see him fight, I don't know if I buy it anymore. But, like, physically, you know, he does look like he actually trained like a boxer would have to get into the role. So I'll I'll give him that much. We're kind of dancing around it, but I do think the one character who's a in entirely on point a hundred percent from how they're portrayed in the games is of course captain sawada um right know, yeah you know, that that one they got perfectly yeah yeah you know it's funny be- that you were talking about how in that article capcom kept pushing for more characters because swat is the reason that the only character who doesn't appear in this game or in this movie got pushed out and i'll, I'll talk about that when <laughs> we introduce swat in the movie but uh that's a Kind of an interesting story that I got from a Street Fighter wiki. So, I mean, you know, there's the possibility that it's not entirely accurate. But but also, I think, you know, you got to give credit to Raul Julia as oh, Bison, who just... He steals the movie. I mean, he's so much... He's, yeah. He's so much fun to watch. And, like, so many of the movie's best parts are just because he's 
so in it like he's he's giving yeah everything for exactly the right kind of performance for this movie you know say what you will about how far that character is from any depictions of bison in the games or other media but he's such an amazing over-the-top bond villain mm-hmm. in this some of his lines are just are just magnificently delivered his speech about how he isn't doing what he's doing for evil. He's doing it for good. All he wants to do is create the perfect genetic super soldier. What's so wrong with that? You know, you know, you know what? You know what? The Marvel movies, like the good guys did that very thing. They just wanted to create a perfect super soldier. Yeah. And they were the good guys in that movie. So they were the good guys. So think about yeah. that, huh? Mm. I've actually got that speech pulled up. Maybe we'll do a dramatic reading of that That'd when we good. get to that scene. That'd be good. Okay. Other than that, who do you think are some of the worst characters in here as far as like departures from their game counterparts? I mean, it's got to be Ken, right? Ken is terrible in this movie. He's a really unpleasant and annoying character, and he bears more or less no resemblance at all to the character from the games. Also, Dalsim, I think, uh, yeah. you know, Dalsim is, they kind of just took a random bit character in this movie and slapped the name Dalsim on him, and then inexplicably have him kind of transform into the look of the character from the game in like his last scene for no real reason that's ever that's ever stated those would probably be my picks but there there are definitely other ones what about you i might go with sagat oh yeah that's is i believe played by a native american actor in this movie that is true really nuts to me um dj is like fine but also just such a nothing character and dj is not really that character though i mean dj is not like dj is another one where they kind of just took like the name and the ethnicity i guess of the character from the game and just put it on like uh, like a minor hench person for bison dj is like is basically a funny Jamaican accent, if we're getting real. Yeah, here. Like, that's pretty much it. And there were times when I did think that, or like, when I sort of wondered, like, why the roles of Balrog and DJ weren't swapped. Uh-huh. Um, because, just because, you know, like, I buy DJ, you know, just from what we know of, of his character from Street Fighter, more of his, a good guy than a villain, mm-hmm. and vice versa with Balrog. But also, like, you know, and, and because we don't get a lot of DJ, and the actor who plays DJ doesn't get a lot to work with, I I can't say this for certain. Uh, Miguel A. Miguel A. Nunez Jr. Uh, apparently uh-huh. played DJ, but I will say Crandall Bush seems like maybe he's just a better actor and or just like a stronger actor than yeah than the, the the actor who plays DJ and maybe that's. But before I go too hard on any of the actors in this movie, like the writing in this movie is bad and they did not have a lot to work with. <laughs> that's true. Um, that's very true. But also, you know, in a little bit of fairness to the writer, even though I, I maintain the writing is bad. This does happen at a time when we don't have a lot of background on these characters. Like what we know about the Street Fighter characters comes from like instruction manuals and strategy guides. Like we don't have this sort of expanded lore about Street Fighter that we would get directly from Capcom a lot later on. So basically the way this movie ended up happening the way it happened is Capcom financed this movie, basically. That's something that's good to know. It's not like Capcom uh, just sold the rights to an American movie studio and then walked away. They wanted this movie to happen. And the guy who ended up writing and directing this movie, Steven S. D'Souza, who had been, you know, he'd worked in TV, he'd worked on some other movies, he had 
possibly most famously, he was the writer of the original Die Hard. He got a call saying, hey, Capcom is coming by and they want us to pitch them a Street Fighter movie tomorrow. Do you want to try to pitch it? And he knew the game because his his teenage son was you know, into the game. So he, you know, was aware of it and he was like, oh yeah, I I can do that. So overnight he came up with a pitch that was essentially what the movie is. And he didn't want to do like a tournament fight movie. He wanted to do something that would be kind of like a combination of a James Bond movie and a war movie. And he pitched it to Capcom And it turned out Capcom actually kind of wanted the same thing. They already had concept art drawn up of like Bison as like the world's most wanted criminal or whatever. So they were like, hey, this works with what we want. So within like a week, they were up and and going on, on, you know, sort of figuring out what the movie was going to be. And so, you know, this is like a huge departure from what most people would probably expect for a Street Fighter movie, but this is actually what Capcom themselves basically wanted at this point. So I think that does also speak to the idea that, yeah, they didn't really have a ton of of sort of things set in stone about what exactly they wanted Street Fighter to be. So they were just like, here, this is a concept that we can kind of fold all of the vague characterizations of these, these you know, fighting game characters into, and we'll go for it. You know, I mean, it makes sense that they would put Guile front and center rather than Ryu, just from a standpoint of like, we have a big villain, his primary uh, adversary is Guile, you know, and to a lesser extent, Chun-Li. So uh-huh. it makes sense that we might position those two characters more front and centered than Ryu, even though, like, clearly Ryu is the star of the Street Fighter game series. Yeah, Ryu gets done pretty dirty by this movie, I think it's fair to say. He really does, yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, anyway, I guess, uh, is there anything else we wanted to talk about before we start the breakdown? I don't think so. I, I think we should just get into it. So uh, I don't know if this is how the movie opened originally in theaters, but we see two Universal logos. And I'm guessing that the first one is actually added maybe more recently. Uh, the second one happens because it's got the Universal logo. It's got the, the little globe spinning. And we need that in order for the globe to turn into the uh, Bison Army logo. Which I So Bison's Army in this movie is not called Shadow Lou. Shadowloo is country the place, is Shadowloo. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's also weird, but That is whatever. very weird, yeah. So the the globe turns into the logo, we see Street Fighter pop up, and uh we fade to a TV screen in which a news program is playing and we see the words Crisis in Shadowloo displayed. The program informs us that the country of Shadowloo has been in the midst of a civil war and that its capital has recently fallen. So we're introduced to our first actual character from Street Fighter, who is Chun-Li, or in this movie, she's called Chun-Li Zhang. I'm not sure if that last name has ever been used for Chun-Li's character outside of this movie. I'm going to guess no. I'm not even sure if that's how Chinese names work. I just figured her name just was Chun-Li. Chun-Li is a... uh, Kung Fu expert in the games and also an Interpol agent. Here she is a reporter for the GNT News Network. She's talking about AN forces, uh, allied nations, I think is 
what that's meant to stand for? Yeah, yeah. Uh, they've recently scored a victory against Bison's forces as they've taken over a port in Shadowloo from which they're now going to be conducting most of their operations throughout the events in this movie. She mentions that they defeated a ragtag militia to take over the city, but that actually defeating Bison's forces will be a much greater challenge. As Chun-Li's newscast slash exposition continues, we cut to M. Bison's lair, and we get our first proper look at Raul Julia's Mad Dictator. And I just want to say I freaking love this lair. This is like absolutely a... 80s, 90s cartoon supervillain lair come to life. It is. It's it's a great set. And uh, it makes sense so much of the movie is actually set in this lair mm-hmm. because, uh, man, they did a fantastic job with this set. It looks expensive in a way that a lot of the rest of the movie just does not. Like, I love the the giant wall of TV screens they use as the large scale like monitor. Uh, Bison has his weird floating platform that he commands from there's the hostage pit, which I'm sure you'll talk about in a second, but Oh yeah. yeah. We'll talk about that hostage. pit. <laughs> uh, it's good. Complete though. with its, its own loudspeaker, I guess. Well, yeah. I, I don't know if I mentioned that, you know, we're going to, there's going to be a lot of loudspeaker humor in this movie. Uh, there's going to be a lot of, you know, either like radio broadcasts or uh, just announcements made via unseen loudspeakers that I, I think a lot of which was added in post maybe to sort of, punch up the comedy chops uh-huh. of this movie. Yeah. You're <laughs> an attempt to do that anyway. So, but yeah, I, I love all the TV monitors. Uh, 90s monitor technology hadn't gotten to the point where we could just make one giant LED screen. So we just have a bunch of stacked CRTs just in a configuration to make up one huge monitor. And there are just other monitors all over the place. And yeah, this set does look very expensive until anyone runs into a wall that starts shaking and then <laughs> yeah. uh, a little bit less so at that point, but no. <laughs> until then. Well, and I will say one thing that isn't great looking about this set is I don't know if they're supposed to be in like a cavern or something, but the walls do look like they're paper mache, like paper mache rocks. Well, they're supposed to be inside the, the temple, right? Or maybe under the I temple? Guess there's, yes, they are supposed to be under the temple. So, okay. Yeah, I guess we haven't seen an establishing shot of the temple yet that that's going to come later and that's going to establish that like that's where bison has made his base at this point chun li's uh newscast is just narration for what we're seeing on screen she tells us that several an aid workers have been taken hostage and we see them as she says this being dumped into the hostage pit by Zangief and some other bison henchmen. She also mentions that the AN soldiers who were tasked with protecting them have also been captured. Most of them were killed, but three have not been confirmed dead, but are missing. Their whereabouts are unknown. And then we immediately see those soldiers being dragged in with canvas bags over their heads. Bison challenges them to one-on-one duels, saying that they came across the world to fight him. This is their chance. They all sort of weakly slap at him, and Raul Julia just grabs them all, and then movie breaks their necks by, you know, lightly shaking them while sort of holding them around the neck, you know, in the way that you have to snap someone's neck in movies so you don't actually hurt anyone. The neck snapping sound effect is phenomenal. I love it. Oh, yeah. No, I, I do remember like seeing that as a kid and being like, oh, my God. You know, and thinking like, wow, that's all it takes to just straight up kill somebody. Whoa. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I did just mention Zangief. Zangief in the game is a big Russian wrestler who here is relegated to simple minded 
Bison Lackey. Yeah, he's basically, going back to the James Bond thing, he's basically, uh, I guess, sort of like Jaws from uh, the Roger Moore James Bond movies. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's he's a giant, uh, so dumb, you, it's, hard, it's hard to believe he can actually walk sort of guy uh, who is just... Uh, just a big slab of muscles, basically. We keep switching back and forth between everything going on in Bison's lair and Chun-Li's report. And we also keep switching between Chun-Li's report being televised and actually seeing Chun-Li live as she's reporting. And A.N. Tank is moving into the town square where Chun-Li is reporting from. And she mentions that the colonel is in that tank and is going to try and get an interview with him. The colonel, of course, is... Guile, our main character, played by Jean-Claude Van Damme. We should also mention um, Chun-Li is played by Ming-Na Wen, who um, is uh, pretty well-known. She's got lots of geek cred. She's been in all sorts of, of yep. uh, uh, great productions. She, she was in uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Yep, she is the voice of she was the voice of Mulan in the Disney Mulan oh, yeah, movie. Yeah. Uh, also the voice of the main character in the Final Fantasy, The Spirits Within movie, which we may talk about someday on this show. I don't know. Uh, and I, yeah, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. And uh, yeah, I think at the time she was doing this, she was, she was either on or about to start appearing on ER. Yeah. Yeah. So if you are not a geek and are listening to this, you probably know her best from ER. <laughs> so anyway, we see Guile, um, Jean-Claude Van Damme. He's, uh, you know, he kind of looks the part of Guile. His hair is about a foot too short, but uh, they did, they did that, try to do something to his hair color here to make him look more guileish i think and it really doesn't work it's very conspicuous yeah i guess they tried to make him look more blonde but uh yeah, yeah it, it just does not work no he mostly just looks like jean-claude van damme so that's yeah that's what they paid for they paid a lot of money to have him that's what they got yeah and also much to my delight he sounds just like jean-claude van damme oh, yeah. which is uh yeah. gonna be just great <laughs> so chun lee tries to go get an interview guile doesn't really want to talk because he doesn't like journalists but he does want to address bison directly and gives a speech that's halfway between schoolyard tough talk and a bad wrestling promo yeah yeah i guess i could have just said bad wrestling promo <laughs> um honestly like this movie could have just been a series of all the characters making their own wrestling promos and it might have been better Pro i don't know <laughs> maybe maybe yeah <laughs> guile does like um you know that up yours arm motion that you do when you're in a movie where they don't let you just you know use your middle finger yeah, so yeah. like this one so this gets bison's attention which was guile's plan all along uh, we're also introduced to DJ in this sequence. DJ is a Jamaican kickboxer in the video games. I think he is maybe like the one character other than Dalsim, who we'll talk about in a moment, um, who uh, does not throw a single punch or kick in this movie. Yeah, he is Bison's tech guy, interestingly. He's always manning the computer. Uh, you know, switching the video feeds and probably doing other stuff that we don't really get to see. So, oh, you know what? I didn't really get that. Like, he was specifically like the tech guy. I he just, must have. That, that makes, was what I assumed he must be. Honestly, that makes a lot more sense. Actually, that's going to make a line that he says later make a lot more sense. Uh, again, we will get to it. Um, I'm glad you picked up on that. Bison just has the ability to cut into TV signals whenever he wants and broadcast himself. So I guess only Bison and that one guy who did that Max Headroom thing years ago uh, have <laughs> <Yeah>. that ability. <laughs> um, 
So Bison cuts into the transmission to address Guile personally, and this uh, gives Guile and uh, Cammy, who we're introduced to, who's played by Kylie Minogue, uh, the Australian pop star who is playing a British soldier, lieutenant. I, I think she. Sure. I think he actually calls her lieutenant at one I point. I think he does, yeah. So she goes into Chun-Li's van where E. Honda is sitting, uh, who is, I guess, Chun-Li's tech guy, mm-hmm. uh, Balrog the boxer from the video game is her cameraman. Mm-hmm. She humorously climbs up E Honda for some reason. Uh-huh. I, I don't know. I don't know because he's fat, I guess. And that's funny. She kicks him out of his own van and then tries to trace the signal with their equipment. This whole scene is kind of bonkers. Yeah. I do not understand why they're, they've just decided like they're going to commandeer Chun-Li's equipment, which they can't possibly know as well as their own equipment to, track there's gonna be a lot of like signal tracking that i have a hard time believing is real in this movie but just add it to the pile put a pin in in that and just put it so many other things right now (laughs) i will say like there's a lot of exposition dump and we're getting a lot of characters right out of the gate like this movie wants to establish its universe right now because the pace of this movie is going to be relentless and there's just going to be no time for that later. This movie has a lot of characters and a lot of situations to set up. And it is an hour and 42 minutes long. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's got that train rolling right from the start. Yeah, like I I remember as I was watching this the first time and really going through it and, and taking notes and thinking like, wow, this happened and we still have this much movie left? Oh, my God. <laughs> <sighs> that... I thought that a lot. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Not only are are Cammy and uh, Guile soldiers tracking the signal, but DJ manages to figure out that they are tracking the signal as Bison is addressing Guile. Again, I don't think this is something he could possibly know, but it, it, whatever. This all feels like techno babbly in like a Star Trek kind of way at this point. It is, yeah. It's very Star Trek-y in that sense. Bison at this point tells Guile that the hostages have three days, and he has demanded a ransom of $20 billion. And if he doesn't get his $20 billion in three days, he is going to kill all the hostages. Uh, He's already killed two of the three soldiers, uh, but Guile, of course, and and the others uh, do not know this. They also do not know that he still has one soldier alive who happens to be Carlos Blanca or Charlie, whom Guile says personally, Charlie, we're going to come and find you as he tries to assure all the hostages that they are coming for them. This causes Bison to check Charlie's dog tags and discover that he is the Charlie that Guile was speaking of. And instead of just movie snapping his neck he's going to do experiments on him Ooh! now okay there is a street fighter character named charlie right that character is not also the street fighter character blanca yes i'm correct there you are absolutely correct so charlie had been mentioned in guile's backstory and through supplemental materials from capcom at this point so we knew there was a charlie I don't think anybody anticipated that Capcom's next proper sequel to Street Fighter would be a prequel that actually introduced Charlie as a character. Right. So I think they assumed they were they sort of had free reign to do what okay. they wanted with Charlie, which is why Got it. they made him Blanca in this. Which I mean, honestly, like 
it makes more sense that you do experiments on somebody and you end up with a green skinned monster than and just hey we abandoned this baby in brazil and it turned into one well, so this is why I'm, I'm bringing this up is because i think that even though uh, for the most part i'm i'm pretty sure nobody ever got anything confused between this movie and like the games i do remember a lot of people being confused because of the charlie blanca thing in this movie about blanca's identity for a long time well i mean it's like i know that a lot of people don't really follow like the lore of fighting game characters that much but like i do think that that is one thing from this movie that kind of stuck with a lot of people was this idea that that Blanca used to be this other character, Charlie, that got like transformed into Blanca at some point. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe a lot of people don't care about the lore of uh, video games from, you know, supplemental materials, but those people aren't Steampunk Link ages <laughs> five to question marks. So, <laughs> so I cared a lot about the, the continuity and I, I was. I was pretty certain even around that time that Charlie and Blanca were not meant to be the same person oh, because I mean the, the um, Blanca's ending in street fighter. Yeah, 2 I, mean, I remember that right. Says this. So, yeah. He's a different person. Yeah. His, his name is Jimmy or something like that. Right. So yeah, it, it is clear that it, it's not meant to be the same character uh-huh. at all. Yes. If you weren't, you know, like going over all of your strategy guides, reading all of the lore, then all you would have to go on is this movie and you wouldn't have known that. So, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, fair enough. So anyway, uh, where were we? Um, they break off the broadcast, and unfortunately, Cammy was not able to track them down. And Guile says to Chun-Li, for a moment there, you were almost useful. Even though it's Cammy, it seems like, that screwed up. She was the one who, you know, hijacked their van and everything and still couldn't track down their signal. Yeah. So I don't know how that's on Chun-Li's shoulders. Uh, but we learned that it's because he doesn't like journalists. Chun-Li asks Cammy, he doesn't like women, does he? Which... I don't know. I feel like that's a weird assumption to make based on that interaction, but all right. Uh, and Cammy assures her, oh, no, he just doesn't like journalists. It's an equal opportunity dislike, you see, I, I think is her line there. I believe that is the line, yes. Soldiers don't like journalists getting in the way because they mess up missions because the journalist wants people to know stuff and the soldiers don't necessarily want that all the time. But, uh, uh, you, you know, you know, they're just they're getting in the way of people doing the real work. Yeah. Yeah. They're not they're not out there killing people. Yeah. Like a real like real man or you know woman in in this case. I will say, you know what? The movie does do that. It it it, it lets the men and women kill in equal measure. They're they're all murderers. All, you know, anybody can be a murderer soldier. So anyway, I'm sorry. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here because there's going to be some political stuff I'm going to get mad about a little bit, but we will get there. Uh, put a pin in that as well. <laughs> so um, this is the first five minutes of this movie. <laughs> like, yeah, like we said, there's a lot of there's a lot of setup here, so it'll it'll pick up a little bit. But yeah. So next we go to a, a fantastic scene in which. Uh, Ryu and Ken, who we are introduced to, are going through a strange underground club where a cage match is happening between someone who is obviously Vega. If anyone knows the video game, they immediately recognize Vega because, as we said before, this is one of the characters who's uh, pretty on point visually. And just some other random guy who... Uh, who is not lucky enough to be a, a character from a, a video game, so he is definitely going to get killed by Vega. Yeah, um, he tries to escape from the cage, but gets 
electrocuted by the barbed wire at the top, it seems. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of gruesome sound effects here as um, Vega, the the claw-wielding, mask-wearing cage fighter, uh, slashes and apparently just guts this guy. We, We hear some pretty gross sound effects, but we don't actually see any blood in this scene or really a lot of violence or fighting at all. It's just kind of assumed from the sound effects as Ryu and Ken are, are, are taken through the crowd. No, no blood. You say there could be a reason for that, uh, which we'll get to a little bit later. <laughs> oh, ooh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. I'm looking uh-huh. forward to that. Yeah. We know that this is Ryu and Ken again, as fans of the video game, because we've got an Asian guy and a white guy. So like who else would it be? I guess. <laughs> Though they did do the thing that happens with exhausting frequency in in American movies where they didn't actually cast an Asian guy of the right nationality <laughs> to play Ryu. So, um, you know, not not a Japanese guy, but an Asian guy. Yeah. And again, so we're in Shadowloo, which is meant to be a fictional Southeast Asian country. As I will mention later, it is Vietnam. This is basically Vietnam. Um, though everybody here that we see is white like there's so many white people everywhere in in this apparently southeast asian country which is uh, yeah a lot of white extras and uh we will get to that as well in just a moment here uh, very shortly actually so uh ryu and ken are taken to sagat's office uh where we meet sagat who is the leader of this uh crime syndicate in shadowloo the Shadowloo Tong, I believe is what they call them later. Yeah, yeah. Also, I, I want to talk about this guy who's leading them through the crowd to Sagat's office, who is dressed in a sort of vaguely military uniform and has what looks like a bandolier that is actually like a studded belt that they got from Hot Topic. Uh-huh. So Ryu and Ken are introduced to Sagat. They're there to sell Sagat some weapons. Um, Sagat is, I think I mentioned, played by a Native American man. In, in the video game, Sagat is a very, very tall, very, very imposing Muay Thai kickboxer. Here, he's a pretty short dude, and really the only thing they get right here is the fact that he's bald and has an eye patch. Now, one thing they did do, because the, the actor playing Sagat, I think, is fairly... Uh, I, I wouldn't say he's an old man, but he's he's an older man. And they do mention that Sagat in in the fiction of this movie used to be like the top number one, you know, cage fighter. Right. So you can, I guess, kind of imagine that he used to look like the Sagat from the games, but doesn't now because he's sort of old and shriveled. Sure. Yeah. They do try to establish, usually through clumsy exposition, that all these people are totally fighters, you guys. Uh-huh. Uh, don't worry about that. Uh, Wes Studi if I'm pronouncing that correctly, is uh-huh. the name of the actor who plays uh, Sagat. Also, his first name is Victor here. You know, the Victor, Victor Sagat. Sagat. Yeah. They gave everybody full names that, that didn't have them, I think. And uh, they're pretty conspicuous because they're just sort of randomly sort of tossed out like that. So, yeah. I love the dialogue here. So Ryu tells Sagat he's got a nice place and then asks him, hey, are you aware that there's a curfew happening? Now, I think Sagat's line is meant to be something along the lines of, in my city, nobody tells me what to do. But what he actually says is, in my city, nobody tells me anything. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. (laughs) I think... No, I I rewound this to check. This was the thing I was telling you about earlier. Uh I wanted to make sure this is what he actually said, and it is. He says, 
in my city, nobody tells me anything. And I like, I almost wanted him to stop at that point and just be like, I, I mean, like that. I don't want to, you know what I mean? You know what I meant when I said uh, that? Don't, yeah. don't, don't laugh. The only other intent for that, that I can think of is that it's like, Oh, well it's my city. I already know everything. So you don't need to tell me about the curfew. I'm already wise on that. It still doesn't play any better, though, regardless of what you think the intent of the line was supposed to be. It's it's weird phrasing that I, I don't think anybody thought through that well. But then we get uh, another line, another example of the intercom humor, where we hear a loudspeaker claiming, you know, or uh, saying that there is a seven o'clock curfew in effect. And I think what this was meant to convey, I think this was supposed to be like a funny thing where like Sagat saying, nobody tells me what to do in my city just before somebody tells him what he should be doing in his city. Uh-huh. But again, because yeah. because that line doesn't come out the way that I think that they meant it to, it ruins that joke. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's what's happening here, but I, I don't know for certain. But anyway, I just, I thought that was so funny. Like, it, it reminded me of something that like, Fry would say on Futurama where he's trying to convey that like his friends are are worth more than money to him and he ends up saying something like they aren't even worth a penny to me like right yeah it's like that that sort of line yeah except that like I don't think that was what they were actually trying to go for but the loudspeaker actually announces that there is a curfew and that people not abiding by that curfew will be shot on sight. Ooh, yikes. That's a little bit much. This presumably is coming from the AN, and at this point, I'm like, who are the bad guys here? I'm sorry, AN are the bad guys? M. Bison is not threatening to just kill people for staying out past their bedtime. I don't know. Did, did you catch that line? Like, no, that, I like, did strike not. strike you as I real did. weird? No, I, I didn't catch that. Uh, that did not really make uh, an impact on me. But it uh, it is not great. Uh, I mean, clearly the AN has locked down this this city. They they do seem to be occupying it in a pretty aggressive yeah. fashion. So yeah, it's just kind of glazed over by the movie here. I don't think the movie really wants you to think that much about that. You know, the I mean, the AN also seems to control like the prison system in this in this city as well which is is seems like a strange leap for them too. Yeah, well, they have the the little military prison yard i guess that's part of the building that they are operating out of but we'll we'll, we'll get to that uh momentarily in a few scenes from now anyway um ryu tells sagat that they have his weapons that they will call him over a radio once they have the money and are safely outside and then he will tell them the location of the weapons sagat seems to agree to this and takes them out into his lobby or whatever although not before offering them some uh prostitutes i think some very pg rated uh prostitutes uh now you don't see anything below the neck on these ladies but that's probably what the implication's supposed to be you know yeah who are also very bummed when ken turns them down and turns them down in a very awkward way saying let's skip the miss manners that's how he says i okay. I, I i'm not interested in yeah, that soliciting seem, prostitutes today that doesn't seem realistic because ken is a gross little goblin man in this movie and i can't imagine <laughs> that any woman would be disappointed by not having the the possibility of of a sexual encounter with him in their future but i don't know well really they wanted ryu and and we'll we'll find out why very shortly um you know, I think they were more disappointed that they ain't going to get some of that Ryu. Oh, is what's sure, happening. sure. Also, 
I just said Ryu because I pronounced his name correctly, which is not yeah. something a single person in this movie is going to do. <laughs> no, it's true. Actually, no, you're not entirely right. There are a couple of people, there are a couple of times when somebody randomly says Ryu instead of Ryu, which is is the way most people pronounce. So it sounds like they accidentally said Ryu a couple of times. Um, like maybe maybe Jean-Claude Van Damme said it, but that was more a result of his accent than actually saying yeah, it correctly. Yeah, actually it is Jean-Claude Van Damme that says it. So, yeah. And, and I will say, but, like, you know, I grew up, you know, suburban, Midwestern, white kid. Like, me and all of my friends pronounced it the exact same way back then. I would have expected that this movie maybe would have known better or would have uh, had the means to actually check by, that. But It was produced by Capcom. They had people from Capcom checking on the production of this movie. Somebody should have noticed. They had one actor who exclusively spoke Japanese on that set. Yes, <laughs> that's true. That's true. Uh, at least one. Anyway, um, so Sagat leads the two out and Ryu offers Sagat the radio, but Sagat informs him that he doesn't need it because he actually already knew where the weapons were, and in fact, his men have already retrieved them. And we see his men grabbing weapons out of crates and aiming them at Ryu and Ken. And Sagat says in a very 80-yard line, what's the matter? You're not afraid of your own weapons, are you? Or something to those to that effect. Uh-huh. Now, I want to say something um, about all of these extras. One thing that we've already mentioned is that a lot of them are white in this uh, Southeast Asian country. Two, they didn't have a single sport coat that fit any of them. No. They all look like they are children swimming in their parents' blazers. It's true. <laughs> So Sagat's henchmen aim the weapons at Ryu and Ken and fire, and it turns out that all of these weapons are actually toys, and they are pelted with Nerf balls and darts. Sagat laughs, saying toys, and then Sagat delivers the very strange line before a fight sequence happens that he prefers his games live and in living color. Yep. Uh, absolutely a line that I have written down here. And I, I I feel like if we hadn't gone with the title for our show that we did, that one would have been a pretty good one, too. <laughs> yes. So instead of signaling the Fly Girls to come out with uh, Marlon Wayans and Jim Carrey, or, uh, sorry, James Carrey, as he was known back then, uh, a fight sequence breaks out and Ryu and Ken start street fighting all of Sagat's bad guys. Handling them pretty easily and doing some nice choreographed kicking through windows Mm -hmm. at the exact same time. But the fight is cut short when soldiers with real weapons come in and hold Ryu and Ken at gunpoint. So we cut back to another scene at Bison's Lair. We get an establishing shot this time of the temple where the lair is. And it is daytime, which this makes the timing of all of this weird, but I will get into that. God, I feel like I'm just putting a pin in everything no, right now. Sorry so, about that. Folks. So one, one thing I love about Bison's Lair um, is that after he uh, makes the declaration that they have three days to provide the, the $20 billion ransom for the hostages, uh, he starts a countdown timer in his own lair. Like, there's a big digital clock on the wall counting down. It's like, he is not actually the guy who needs to be reminded of of how long the hostages have. Like, it's I, I love that detail. It's very goofy to me. And, um, and on the topic of that timer, we also see a countdown timer on monitors in a lot of the AN briefing rooms when Guile and company are talking later on. I just want, like, conversations between these two where uh-huh. they're synchronizing their timers to make yeah, sure that everybody's good. on the same page. Uh-huh. 
Got to coordinate. Yeah. So in this scene, we are introduced to Dr. Dalzim, who looks absolutely nothing like the Dalzim from the games. As we mentioned before. Nope. He is just a random sort of minor character that they have given the name Dalzim to because that's a character from the game. Yep. And uh, Dalzim is played by Roshan Seth. And uh, Dalzim lets us all know that he is definitely there against his will. He doesn't want to do all these weird experiments on Carlos Blanca to turn him into a monster. But M. Bison is leaving him no choice. Bison tells him that, well, maybe you'll feel better after this experiment's over, because we'll we'll get you published in a in a research journal. That's such a good line. <laughs> it, it really is. And we'll see about getting you published. Yeah. Um, so Dalzim is apparently in charge of warping Blanca's mind. He is not in charge of actually warping his body, which is done by Bison's more loyal scientists. Which I feel like is really begging the question. Why does he need Dalzim? Dalzim clearly does not want to be there and is not going to be loyal to him the moment he gets a chance to. Well, and the, Why would he even take the, the risk of having Dalzim there? The, the mechanism for warping Blanca's mind already seems set up, so it doesn't really seem like Dalzim even needs to be there to operate it at this point. Yeah, so he's basically put like weird virtual reality goggles on Blanca and, and strapped him into a chamber, which is just like the chintziest looking prop in it's this It's like a room. tanning bed, basically. It's like a big, <laughs> weird capsule that they put him into, and the virtual reality goggles are I guess showing him all the worst things that humanity's ever done, you know, murders and speeches by Hitler and, you know, explosions and fire, and it's kind of doing like a Clockwork Orange thing on him, I guess. Yeah, I'm assuming that, like, underneath the goggles, they're, you know, doing the, the Ludovico or whatever it's uh-huh. called, where they force your eyelids open. Yeah. Otherwise, it would seem like it's just a pretty easy to just close your eyes and not look yeah. at that. Yeah. Uh, but somehow this is warping his brain to make him violence or evil, I it's guess. Make, it's making I, the red bar go up on the progress screen that they keep showing. Right. Yeah. And that's bad. I do like uh Raul Julia uh, Bison's line when he looks at all the things that Blanca is being exposed to and says, these are merely educational software. Why is he, so upset about this, and Dalsim retorts, because he's not a psycho. To and uh Bison doesn't like that. That that is uh that is a sore spot for him, so he he throws Dalsim across the room, tells him to to watch his mouth, basically. As Bison says his loyal scientists will work on his body, and they wheel out an IV cart that is apparently filled with giant bags of IV drips that contain, I'm guessing, ecto-cooler and it's, fruit punch. It's bright green, y'all. It's bright green. <laughs> it's just the most fluorescent colors that have ever been in a giant IV drip bag. Yeah. And it is hilarious. And they're also helpfully marked with labels like Danger Mutagen uh-huh. and fun things like that. So then we cut back to Sagat's hideout, which I assumed was the next night because we went from night to day in the establishing shot of Bison's place to night again. But that can't possibly be the case, given what we see on the timer in a like a scene or two from now that show that less than a day has passed. So I guess they weren't too concerned about continuity. Ah, really? Yeah, I know. Imagine, right? So Ryu is being forced to face off in a cage match against Vega. Also, Sagat, um, as um, as they start the match, says that he's going to start 
the bidding at a hundred dollars American, which is is that how bidding works? That's like an auction, right? Like, yeah, I want to start I would, the auction at the, like like bidding means like, hey, I want this much on this person, and right, yeah, no, I mean, I think that he should have been saying betting, right? Like, and the betting probably should have been done before the match, but I don't know. Yeah. Oh no, I'm sorry. He probably did say betting. It's just that he said the the betting starts at a hundred, which is weird. But I I don't know. You know what? I don't. I I wouldn't I worry about that bookie. one too much, honestly. I don't yeah. know how that works, but I also like that Vega enters the cage uh, to uh, Habanera from Carmen, the opera, uh-huh. the Spanish opera. Um, I guess like I don't know. They thought they thought La Cucaracha would be too tacky. Maybe I don't know. <laughs> yeah, everybody is just obsessed with Vega, as Ken says. He's a pretty popular guy. Sagat helpfully tells him that he's the best cage fighter in the world. That uh, the only person better than him might have been Iron Fist, which was Sagat himself, which is a Weird name for Sagat, given what we know about him. Like they, they could have. This was an opportunity to like you know squeeze a little bit of uh, you know like a fun nod, like calling him like the Great Tiger or something. Yeah, because he right. Shouts Tiger for all of his special moves in the game. But in this scene, Ryu is is uh, gonna fight Vega. Uh, Ryu is given a a big like kind of machete to fight with, or it's, it's like a sword. And one of the things that I learned in prepping for this is that, um, that sword was real and the actor playing Ryu did not get trained in how to use it. They did not really give him any, uh, ahead of time, like, you know, fight training or fight choreography for this scene. You know, he didn't even know that, that they were going to be filming this scene, uh, until the day of when the the assistant director was like, hey, are you ready for your knife fight? And he was like, what? So he went to one of the Thai uh, stunt people and asked him to show him anything he knew about how to 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 do this kind of, of fighting. So he showed him some stuff, and that's what's in the movie uh, with this very real weapon that... Uh, that that could have definitely hurt somebody. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And also uh this is the part where one of the uh cage girls uh tears Ryu's shirt off, causing all of the women in the audience to start turning on Vega a little bit and start swooning over Ryu instead. In fact, one girl actually gets rid of her Vega sign, to which Vega's jaw just practically hits the floor. I loved the facial expression from the actor playing Vega in that moment. It was so great. And I, I could imagine it being paired with like the, the yell from that Vega does in the video game. (laughs) That would have been a great touch, but, Uh um, but yeah, uh, Vega is just crestfallen that this one random fan has, uh, forsaken him for this, this new hunky guy, Ryu. And the audience has turned on Vega so much that they plead for him to not use his claw or weapon and instead would prefer, uh, Vega make this a more fair fight, and they just fight fisticuffs. Uh, Vega decides to abide by the crowd's chance and puts his claw and mask away. Or actually, he he comes in wearing the mask and claw. He puts them on a pillow that is being held by one of the cage girls for some reason. I guess so he can do his backflips and everything, which again, you know, like pretty impressive. Like the actor does a really good job of really selling this. And then goes to reach for his his mask and claw again uh, before deciding not to uh, at the audience's request. Uh, we also hear, you know, like people just shouting Vega over here. And this is one of these times where, I, you know, I noticed that like 
you know, again, kind of like the intercom, there's going to be a lot of crowd chatter and never, there, there will not be once in this movie where the crowd chatter or intercom is spoken in a language that is not English. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so, um, yeah, Ryu does his sword tricks and then throws the sword over Vega's shoulder, sticking it into a, a, a wooden post behind him. Uh, the two prepare to fight unarmed and just as they are rushing towards each other, a tank crashes through the wall of the club or arena or whatever you want to call it. And uh, Guile pops out declaring that everybody in the club is under arrest. And when we cut back to the crowd, there are suddenly AN troops there. Yeah, this movie has a, this movie has a lot of people about to fight and then not fighting, which I think is a very, very uh, interesting choice for a movie based on a fighting video game scene. <laughs> Also, Guile was just straight up going to murder people by running them over in that tank because he couldn't see what was on the other side of that wall. So we cut to another scene with Guile uh, being briefed by Sawada. Uh, Sawada is played by a a Japanese martial artist uh, action star named Sawada. Um, So yeah, Capcom wanted to put this guy in the movie and specifically they pushed really hard for them to cast this guy as Ryu. And the director did not want to do that because uh, Sawada did not speak or understand English and was not, he he didn't think that was going to be a great fit for, for, you know, this, this character who has like significant screen time in the movie. So the compromise they came up with, which is a really weird one is that Sawada is in the movie as a character named Captain Sawada who pops up pretty conspicuously, I think like three different times in the movie to basically deliver some like exposition. And it's like, who's this guy? He's just here. Apparently Sawada was not happy about this, but uh, Capcom had a deal with him where they were really trying to push him as a star. And um, yeah, this was, this was sort of the compromise they came to when it came to street fighter. I think that's why Faye Long isn't in this movie, which sort of makes me think like, why didn't they just name the character Faye Long? It's not like they were really all that concerned with making sure that the Asian actors matched their character's country of origin or anything, but right. Yeah. But also I think that all of Sawada's lines, at least the ones delivered in English are ADR because again, like you said, I I don't think he spoke English or understood it all that well at the time. No, he does have one scene where he is talking to somebody else in Japanese and it's subtitled. Yes. And um, yeah, he's clearly much more comfortable doing that than he is probably like phonetically reciting the the you know english dialogue or it, it sounds like he's phonetically reciting the english dialogue in scenes like this one yeah i mean like his his mouth matches the words pretty well like they yeah. they, they got him to do that pretty well but i think like everything he says is adr and i don't know if it's swada himself that is doing it i suspect not but i i don't know that for certain guile is being briefed by sawada who um is basically wanting to know if they're going to be attacking bison by air or by sea, uh, they don't really know this yet because they're still trying to pinpoint the exact location of bison's base. As Guile and Swada are talking, a man bringing water is stopped by two random soldiers who check his name badge before letting him enter. Cammy starts talking about uh, trying to pinpoint bison's location. We cut back to the man serving water to the other troops in the room before he reveals himself to be an assassin who jumps up on the table and charges at Guile with the knife. Guile, Jean-Claude Van Damme kicks him, knocks him on his back, and punches him again, and then 
throws him off the table and then nonchalantly asks if there is any other new business because Guile's so cool and all. Yeah. Uh, Cammy decides to go inspect the body of the person who, well, I guess he's not dead yet, but she goes to check on the person who just attacked Guile, ripping his shirt open, discovering a <laughs> very hilariously poorly drawn tattoo. Oh, yeah. On his chest. And then we cut to that same tattoo, this time on someone's arm. And as we pan out, we see that it is Sagat's arm. I guess we're supposed to imply that this is the signature of the Shadow Law, Sh- uh, Shadow Law, Shadow Lu. Sorry, I forget how this is pronounced because it's pronounced differently in other Street Fighter media. Yeah, and this is Shadow Lu, I think. Um, but yes, it's the symbol of the Shadow Lu Tong, the criminal syndicate that Sagat runs. So at this point, we cut between shots of the prison yard. And shots of Guile and Cammy and T-Hawk all discussing what this means. Ryu and Ken are eating in the prison yard and everybody gets up, leaving Ken to wonder if everyone's afraid of them. Ryu says, nope, they're not afraid of us. They're afraid of Sagat and Vega, who are also in the prison yard with them. Guile realizes that this must mean that Sagat is working for M. Bison or is at least running guns for him. And that if he can infiltrate Sagat's gang he might be able to figure out where Bison's hideout is. So I get that that's what the the intention is here, but I do think this is one place where the movie could have been a little bit more insistent on explaining what the plot detail is here. Like maybe oh, absolutely. saying it a couple of times or in a longer scene, because I kind of missed this a little bit. And then I spent a decent portion of, of the rest of this part of the movie being like, what are they there to do? Like, why is it, why does it matter that they're for them to infiltrate the gang like this? Cause yeah. Yeah. So it, I, I agree with you. I had to rewind that a couple times and sort of connect the dots on my own to, to yeah. figure out that that's what they were going for. It, part of the, the reason is that Jean-Claude Van Damme's accent makes some of his yeah. dialogue almost unintelligible. It's true. Yeah. But anyway, uh, Cammy informs Guile that Sagat did not get to be the leader of the Asian underworld by trusting a lot of people and making friends. Ryu and Ken are fighting with a bunch of Sagat's people in the prison yard this gets the attention of Guile, Cammy, and T-Hawk, who all go out to take a look at what's going on. Guile asks T-Hawk who those two men are. He responds, they are Ken Masters, which I do believe was Ken's established last name at this point, officially. Yeah, I mean, it definitely ended up being Ken's last name one way or another, and I can't imagine that's something that they took from this movie and then made canon. So it, it must no, have I, been, Yeah, it must have already been his name. So... Here's the thing that I'm not sure is actually true, so take this with a grain of salt. I remember hearing that the uh, Ken Masters name came from like an action figure in America that they had to huh. change the name of or give him an actual last name because they didn't want to mix it up or infringe the on the Barbies Ken. Exactly, yeah. Huh, interesting. I can believe that. Yeah, I've heard that's where it comes from. I I have not actually confirmed that recently, so I don't know for sure if that's where it comes from. But um, he also said that the other man is Ryu or Ryu Hashi, I think is what he says his last name is, uh, which, again, not a last name that I think Ryu ever has anywhere else. Uh-huh. Guile, in a, a real weird leap of logic here, decides that if Sagat isn't interested in trusting new friends, maybe he will trust new enemies. Yeah, that doesn't seem like it's any better, really. I get what he's going for. I get why he would maybe use Ryu and Ken as a plant. Maybe, you know, as like a the AN is sort of putting the screws to us now, too, so we'll be uneasy allies, and that would make 
Sagat a little bit more willing to trust them. But yeah, this idea that like, oh, he'll trust enemies before friends is real weird and, and yeah, yeah. frankly kind of stupid. <laughs> also, I just want to comment really quick on their uniforms. What is going on with these superfluous shoulders flaps on their uniforms with like the weird? Yeah, I wondered about that. Too. They've got like weird washcloths or something. Yeah, I know. I-, I was watching this with my partner and and she was also very distracted by that. Um, and once she pointed it out, so was I, because it's. I, I don't get what those are or what they're supposed to be. I mean, the AN uniforms as a whole are awful. Like, they're these weird blue and white camo things that are, I think, probably the most conspicuous-looking camo that's ever existed. Well, you know why they had to do that, though, is I think because so the audience could follow the action in some of the fight sequences where you've got the blue AN troops versus the red bison troops. That does make sense, actually. But yeah, I don't know why they have these weird is weird. Yeah, they are like washcloths that are like kind of strapped to their so- their shoulders. Yeah, it looks ridiculous. I don't know if this is based on any actual military thing, but if it is, you all should stop unless you've got a very good reason for it because you all look ridiculous. Okay, I said it. Oh, so we cut back to Dalsim, who is still experimenting on Blanca. He's real upset about it, though. Uh, he goes over to one of the scientists monitoring the Kool-Aid drip IV bags, uh, who uh, sends a rather husky older bison trooper, who again is white, to take Dalsim away. Now, I don't know who this actor is. I don't know who this is supposed to be. This person, I like the minute I saw this person, I was like, did they base the character Rufus on this guy? He does kind of look like Rufus, doesn't he? I hadn't thought about that. I don't think that character that 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 character in the movie is based on a character from the game, but he's so distinctive looking that yeah, yeah, he's got like a he, he's an older guy who's got like a little braid in the back yeah. of his hair. Like it is his appearance. He is very strange, and it is a very interesting choice of this actor to play this guard. It, it is very strange. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he, like the, the braid just sort of made me think of like Rufus's top knot and everything. Uh-huh. Yeah. I am, I am positive it is a coincidence. There is no way Capcom was like, Hey, remember that really bad American movie we made about Street Fighter over a decade ago? What if we based a new character on that for Street Fighter four? <laughs> but, <laughs> but I would believe it if that were the case. Um, also, I think I wrote in my notes before I made the Rufus connection. Um, it's like, uh, Pavarotti has, has a side gig as Bison's soldier or something. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. And we also learned that, um, the, uh, that Blanca's muscle mass is increasing from all the mutagen and that's pretty much this scene. Yeah, I think so. I don't think there's really anything else going on here. I guess they just wanted to remind us that, oh yeah, that's still happening. Don't worry. Um, so we cut to um, some refugees getting off of a boat. I was very interested in uh, in the ethnicities of the extras who were going to be the refugees, uh, but all their faces are obscured. So I was like, okay, all right, well done, movie. Because it would have been really weird to have a bunch of white people getting off that boat. Uh-huh. Yeah. So we have a uh, Guile who is uh, making Ryu and Ken watch the refugees getting off the boat before asking them to come with him. They follow him into... I guess an infirmary or a makeshift infirmary where people are getting treatment after getting off the boat. Ken asks if this is some sort of guilt trip. Guile says it's just a wake up call. And then he looks over some something in a blue binder that is apparently their criminal records or something. Uh-huh. They are low level criminals who seem to rob other criminals, which I 
I feel like makes them pretty firmly on the side of good, honestly. Like I I don't I don't feel like that's terribly ambiguous. Maybe no, they're a little bit yeah. selfish, but But yeah, I mean they were trying to sell a very bad man things he could not hurt people with when we saw when we, we see them in the movies. So Yes. Yeah, you know, they seem all right. Yeah, I I don't feel like like morally they're they're all that ambiguous no. to the point where like Guile needs to switch them to the side of good or whatever. But in any case, I guess that's what they're going for here. He asks them if they're the same as Sagat or if he's right and they are different. And like Jean-Claude Van Damme delivers these lines. Like all I could think of was Tommy Wiseau. If Tommy Wiseau were Guile in this movie, dialogue wise, there would not be much difference. It's true. (laughs) Ryu says, no, they're totally different and uh, wants to leave. Guile says, the only way you guys are going to leave is over my dead body foreshadowing yeah so we cut to a few moments later where t-hawk is loading up some of the prisoners into a transport while an intercom plays uh some funny bison so dumb jokes oh and just in case you didn't get that shadow lou is definitely a vietnam uh analog we actually get like a radio announcer earlier in the movie delivering the line good morning shadow lou yep yeah, just like uh, just like Robin Williams in that movie, like a poor man's Robin Williams. <laughs> oh, oh, it, that is some of the most egregious stuff in this movie. It is so hard to listen to, and they play some of those like bison so dumb jokes over the credits as well. Yes, it they do just... that. Yeah, it's true. Oh, anyway, so uh, this prison apparently was just a, a makeshift holding area uh, set up by the AN, and they are going to be taking them to. Uh, to the Navy, who are going to be locking these guys up in, in their brig. Uh, Sagat tells Guile that uh, this isn't over, that he owns this city. Guile responds by saying, Oh yeah, well, I'm the repo man, and you're out of business. Which, I feel like he could have done better there. I feel like he could have had a better comeback. Like, just say, Oh yeah, well, consider it repossessed. That's all That's all you need. Yeah. D- that's it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ryu and Ken are also getting onto the uh, the prisoner transport. And they stage a little fight between the two of them, where uh, they start shoving and slapping each other. Uh, T-Hawk and some of the other soldiers break Ryu and Ken up. Uh, T-Hawk grabs Ryu and puts him onto the transport. As they get on the transport, Ryu uh, reveals that he took the keys for their handcuffs off of T-Hawk in the scuffle. He starts unlocking himself and Ken. Sagat asks Ryu and Ken to free him and Vega as well. Ken, of course says, no, I don't really want to do that. You've tried having us killed now a couple of times. So God says, no, man, that's that's behind us now. Like, uh, we can help you get out of the city because, again, I own the city. Ryu and Ken decide that's good enough reason to unlock him, or, well... That's what they're going to play on anyway. Ryu, Ken, Vega, and Sagat all get free. Ryu and Vega then attack the soldiers and hijack the van, driving away. T-Hawk manages to jump into the back, having a little bit of a tussle with Ken, who grabs his gun and then shoves him back out of the truck. A bunch of troops are getting ready to fire on the truck. T-Hawk stops them, saying that they'll hit the cargo, which was definitely not in that van when they were loading everybody up, but will be in the van getting dumped out by the prisoners in a scene a few shots from now. Continuity, baby. Yeah. T-Hawk does have a reason to not want anyone shooting at the van, but it is not because of hitting any cargo. So Guile chases after the van. We also see uh, as the van goes through the town square, uh, Chun-Li, Ihanda, and Balrog, who are still in the movie, by the way, are standing there watching. Guile starts shooting at the van. Ken, with T-Hawk's gun, starts firing back, striking Guile twice in the abdomen. 
presumably killing him. Which, okay, so this whole sequence, I think, would require a lot of luck on everybody's part to have have this outcome. But, uh, you know, clearly it, it does, so... So, I mean, we'll just spoil it right here. Ryu and Ken did all of this under Guile's orders. T-Hawk was part of the plan, allowed Ryu to grab his keys, and allowed Ken to grab his gun. I'm assuming knowing that the gun was not loaded with actual rounds. Right, yeah. It's what I'm assuming must must be happening here, which is why T-Hawk tells them not to shoot. However, we do see some of the other AN soldiers fire on the van. Yes. Meaning they were either very bad shots, or all of those soldiers must have been in on the plan. This is what I mean by saying there's a lot that needed that would have needed to go right here for like yeah. either for them to not die or for Guile to be in the right place for them to fake shoot him, or for this to all go off in the in the way that they they want it to to go off. But uh hey, um I guess that's how it works when you're trying to implant a, a double agent pretty much instantly or a couple of double agents pretty much instantly into a very suspicious criminal's inner circle so two double agents who like by guile's own admission at this point doesn't really know he can trust yes but indeed. you know takes his chances so all of this happens as the van drives away chun li does a cool combat role and plants some sort of tracking device. I guess uh, the wireless microphone or something. Yeah, it's a, on the van. It's a very dynamic role she does. Yes, yeah. I mean, I feel like she could have just tossed it, but you know that wouldn't have been as cool. Yeah. So she plants a tracker on the van herself as it drives away. Cami goes over to Guile's presumably dead body and screams for a medic as a bunch of onlookers just sort of gawk and take pictures. Balrog is there. We we can tell from his wild pants, which um, I feel like is more of a DJ thing. And I, I can't remember if, I, if I've already brought it up, but it is a little bit baffling to me that Balrog is a good guy and that DJ is a bad guy. And I, I almost feel like those roles should have been reversed. And yeah, this is one of those scenes where I kind of felt like, why, why isn't DJ the cameraman? Why? I don't know. So then we cut to a scene back at Bison's Lair where Bison is apparently having a new model made that's going to be a model of what he wants to turn the temple into above him. That's what I'm assuming here. I think that's what's going yeah, on. Yeah. Yeah. It's his city. He wants to build a uh, Bisonopolis. And right. Um, yes. So one of the things I love about Bison in this movie is that he's got the plan he's executing right now is this one where he's got these hostages and he's ransoming them for $20 billion. But he's got a lot of other plans that are just really funny, like wild things that he is, is, planning to do next i guess uh you know this is one of them i guess this is what he's going to use the 20 billion for but yeah um really he wants to make he wants to make bisonopolis happen yeah and i i do also like the touch that he thinks the food court should be a little bit bigger because all the franchises are going to want in so as he's having this conversation uh chun li appears on the news again reporting that william f guile has been killed uh, this gets us a little bit more insight into Bison and Sagat's relationship, as Sagat was gun-running for Bison, as we learned from Chin Li. Uh, Chin Li delivers this news in a very solemn way, despite the fact that uh, Guile was kind of a jerk to her in their only encounter well, thus far. <laughs> well, you know, it's, you know, you, you always act somber when you're reporting on the death of a uh, a public figure, even if it's one you don't like a whole lot. I suppose that's true, yeah. 
as DJ hears this, he suggests that they all celebrate, but uh, Bison says that he's actually in mourning because he wanted to face Guile himself and kill him himself. Uh, I do like DJ's reaction to Bison indicating that this is no time to celebrate, and, and uh, which is sort of, you know, like DJ's whole thing is that, okay, whatever, I am not here for this garbage, I am just here to get paid, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Which, you know, maybe somewhat of an allegory for the way the actor felt, who knows? <laughs> uh, so at this point, Bison gives his rousing speech, um, you know. I love this so much. So should I just read the entire speech here? Oh, yeah, go for it. Just do it. The road not taken. But why? Why do they still call me a warlord? And mad? All I want to do is create the perfect genetic soldier. Not for power. Not for evil. But for good. Carlos Blanca will be the first of many. They shall march out of my laboratory and sweep away every adversary, every creed, every nation, until the very planet is in the loving grip of the Pax Bisonica. And then peace Beautiful. <laughs> and then peace will reign, and the world and all humanity shall bow to me in humble gratitude. Yeah. <laughs> it's so good. Uh so okay. uh, this speech move this speech moves Zangief to tears, who uh comments that that was a beautiful <laughs> speech. And of course DJ just looks dumbfounded and like he couldn't care less about anything. Yes. Yeah. So and then I think we get the the overhead shot of that model of uh Bisonopolis where it is is made clear that when viewed from above, the buildings all arranged to form the like skull with wings logo <laughs> that yes. is that is is the bison logo. So very good, very good stuff. Which is incorporated into so many things in Bison's lair. Like the uh-huh. the backs of chairs, uh just engraved in computer monitors his fireplace in his personal quarters which we'll get to momentarily yeah god (laughs) i'm not gonna lie i want that fireplace it's a very good fireplace it's true so we cut to a scene in which chun li is climbing into her van after adjusting a satellite dish on the top of it Uh, they are tracking the truck that ryu hijacked earlier they get some interference causing them to deduce that someone else planted a tracking device of their own on the truck as well again it's just people tracking stuff and being able to figure out when their tracking is being tracked and tracking 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 device tracking devices are like are like image enhancements in in things like this they're (laughs) they're basically magic it doesn't really matter how any of this stuff would maybe work in the real world it just matters that it it works or doesn't work just well enough to get the plot where it needs to go. Yeah, yes. T-Hawk tells them to move along, and Honda starts to drive the van away as Chun-Li gets into her super spy outfit, uh, surprisingly quickly, and with Balrog next to her, apparently. I think she had it underneath her her reporter clothes. That's how it looked to me, is that she just kind of takes those off, and she's got... Kind of like a black ninja sneaking suit. Yes. Under under that. As the van gets stopped at a checkpoint, Chun-Li sneaks out of the top and into the building that the AN is using as their base, following the signal of the other device that's interfering with her device, I I think. This is another scene that I'm not too clear on what's actually uh, yeah, happening. Yeah, I don't really I, get why this happens the way it does. And uh, so I, I assume that they are tracking the device that... Like, I don't understand why they would be able to track where their tracking signal 
is actually like I, I don't know getting they, interrupted from yeah I don't yes, know yeah I, I don't I don't know anyway uh, Chun Li sneaks into the building and goes into the morgue which is where they put the computer for that. There's also a skeleton in here, which I like. Uh, that's good. There's like a skeleton. There's just like a straight up body works exhibit in this morgue. There is, like, yeah. There's like some the... organs on display. I don't know what the AN is doing there, but it doesn't seem great. No, it seems like they're doing weird genetic experiments of their own, but it's never addressed. Um, chun sneaks around and finds the computer, uh, which just happens to be next to a bed with a body under a sheet. She peels the sheet back to reveal that it is the body of none other than Colonel Frederick. Frederick? Is that his name? Guile? William. William, William F. Guile. Fre- oh, I was thinking F for Fre- – maybe the F is for Frederick. Who knows? Sure. William yeah. Guile. Right. She uh, she puts the sheet back over Guile, who then gets up in a nice pop scare moment and uh, reveals that – just kidding. He's been alive all along. Why he's been lying in the morgue, I don't know. I guess in he case – tired. And- he just needed a nap. <laughs> In in the morgue, which is like visibly very very cold, like we see Chun Li's breath. Yes, that's right. It's like a meat locker, basically. Yeah, and Kyle was just real committed to the bit. Like, no, no, I have to be in the freezer too. I have to, I have to lie in the morgue for a while. Like, Kyle, we all we're all part of the plan. We all know. No, no, it, it's important. I have to do this. <laughs> so uh, he tells Chun Li that he did not want to give her an interview when he was alive. He's certainly not going to do it. When he's dead, he also takes off the the squibs from underneath his shirt that uh, went off, revealing that the whole thing was a ruse. Chun Li immediately concludes, even though I don't know how she would even know that these two people exist, that the two people who led the breakout and shot him are actually working for him. Just uh, very conveniently moving that exposition along. Guile uh, has Chun Li arrested by T Hawk and Cami. Chun-Li resists, telling Guile that this isn't just about being a reporter, that this is actually personal, and that she actually has an axe to grind with Bison herself. And Guile says, this war is not about your personal vendetta, which uh, is pretty rich coming from Guile, who actually admits, after she is dragged out of the room, that it is about his personal vendetta. Yeah, which he developed pretty quickly, I feel like. He was presumably in charge of this mission before the whole business with Charlie happened. That is true. That is what he's talking about, right? Is is Charlie, yes, yeah. his, his best friend, getting uh, getting kidnapped by Bison. So, yeah, this at some point, like, Guile has secretly started doing this for personal reasons, which doesn't really seem like the trait you want in a commanding officer, but, you know, hey. I mean, it's really strange, because, like, later on in the movie, we actually see, like, a Newsweek magazine where bison and guile are sort of facing off so like apparently this is a rivalry that the world knows about that maybe precedes charlie's capture we we are meant to understand that it is about the fact that charlie has been captured by bison but that's a pretty recent development so yeah right as as chun li tells us at the beginning of the movie so yeah like it, it it's not like this is some long brooding hatred that he's had for bison over something that happened to charlie i mean this is something in the street fighter 2 lore like charlie died while they were escaping from bison's prison or something so like there is like more time for that sort of wound to fester and become a personal vendetta for guile where yeah like it just it all happens real fast here but i mean yeah so does like everything in this movie i mean you know we, we, we get the three-day timeline, so everything has to happen within those three days. Everything happens within these three days, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, as uh, Cammy and T-Hawk are leading 
Chun-Li down a hallway. She very easily escapes from both of them and jumps out a window. Yep, just right through that window. Just jumps straight through like a pane of glass. And uh, T-Hawk responds to all this saying, what a screw up, which is a weird line. And I don't know if he's saying that about Chun-Li, which like, I don't think that word means what you think it means, if that's what he's saying, or if he's like saying it about them for letting her escape. Yeah. Which would make more sense, but it's, it's still just a very strange line. And then Guile pops his head through the window and it's like, it follows it up with, what a woman. Yeah, which is is meant to like start this whole idea that maybe there's some chemistry between the two of yeah. them, which is not earned in the slightest. But The name of this podcast uh, comes from a line that happens in this movie. That's part of why we decided to do this movie first for the show. I told my partner that we had taken the name of a, the, our movie podcast from a line in this movie. And I asked her to try to guess which one it was as we were watching the movie. So she started just writing down all of the lines that she thought maybe <laughs> we had, we had picked I would love while to see we were watching <laughs> it. Uh, it's really good. But at a certain point, at a certain point, it definitely stopped being a list of lines that could plausibly be the title of a podcast and turned into just, all the good lines from this movie. <laughs> and uh, this was definitely one of them. The what a screw up, what a woman uh, was, was one of the ones that, that ended up on her list. And um, even though it's, it's not a thing that anybody would really want to have as the title of a, a, a as the title of this podcast, certainly it's, it's not too late. We could call this podcast. What a screw up. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh. No, no, I, I like uh, Quick Change the Channel. Yeah. D- did she guess that one? Was that on the list? No, interesting. Really? She didn't write down that one. Yeah, she she just, like, she wrote down, like, four other lines from that scene, but not that one. So, yeah. of that scene i think that is the next scene we're actually it is the very next yeah. scene actually yeah so this scene is the most interesting scene in the movie i think like there's some actual like interesting political intrigue happening here outside of the opening shot which is incredibly racist as it has what i am sure is a white dude doing his best slash worst uh middle eastern accents peddling in um stolen iraqi and american military vehicles yes that's right the iraqi vehicle has uh five speeds two forward and three reverse i'm (laughs) not sure if there's a joke in there it feels like there probably is um Uh, I, i think probably about like uh iraq like you know it's like oh yeah they're such cowards we beat them so easily in desert storm they ran away i think that's probably what the joke is supposed to be yeah that's kind of what i was thinking that they were going but yeah it's funny it's just like it's just like a carnival it's like a weapons dealer carnival is where we're at right now yeah it's, it's like a fun street fair but for the underworld yeah. you know like yeah yeah like here have some scented candles and also uh this helicopter used by the american military only once to evacuate uh refugees from saigon i think he said and the yes. then urges his potential buyer to kick the tires now this whole scene very much has the feel of something from like one of the joel schumacher batman movies yeah yeah i could see uh, that like this feels like something that could be happening in like that version of gotham city <laughs> Yep, that is to say that it sounds like it's from a better movie, but actually I'm not sure that's true. If it's the Joel Schumacher ones, <laughs> maybe not. Maybe not. this this might be a better movie than both of the Joel Schumacher Batman movies. It might be, yeah. 
at this fair, uh, Bison and Sagat are being entertained. They're bringing in uh, various acts. One of those acts is Chun Li, who is in disguise, obscuring her face because uh, obviously everybody would know who she is. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Along with uh, E Honda and Balrog, who are doing a sort of magic slash strong guy kind of act. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's actually it, it's, it's kind of neat. Okay, actually, yeah. They they sell it pretty well. Um, obviously, it's it's one of those things where it's like they're doing magic in a movie that. I'm fairly certain would be impossible to do given the logistics of where they are and, and what they would have had access to on that stage. But, you know, I mean, I'll, I will suspend my disbelief for that sort of thing in movies. You know, that, that's fine. It's movie logic. Yeah. They've infiltrated his performers and they plan to blow up the entire thing, hopefully destroying Bison and Sagat, just blowing them up right then and there. However, they run into a bit of a snafu when Chun Li realizes that Ryu and Ken who she knows is working for Guile, are at the bazaar as well, and presumably she does not want to kill them as well. She's not down for collateral damage. So she decides to use her feminine wiles to lure Ken away. Uh, as Ryu is talking to Ken about how their sensei instilled them with better morals. Yeah, that's the only reference in this movie to them having a background as fighters, I think. Yeah, it feels like they just sort of needed to shoehorn in the fact that like, oh yeah, they're, they're, these guys are totally fighters. Don't worry about it. They're 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 definitely yeah. big old karate people these two. Yep, yep, yep. And that they train together, I guess, which, you know, coming from the game. Like most of the men in this movie, Ken's a absolute dirtbag, so uh so so her leading him away does work. So is DJ in this scene who just has like the creepiest ass leer that we zoom in on as uh some yeah. belly dancers come out yeah, who are following that. up uh Chun Li's act. So those belly dancers are hilarious because they are I, I I guess they're dancing, but they're not really dancing. They're definitely not doing a belly dance, but they're they're like the most awkward like just you know Here's some some people trying to do some poses that kind of look like dancing, but clearly weren't given any actual choreography or anything. Yeah, we cut away from them really fast, which I think is like why we get the DJ leer, because like we needed to focus on something, not those dancers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Going yeah. back to what Ryu was talking about, how he seems sort of disappointed in them that their sensei instilled them with better morals than what their current situation is really um allowing them to exercise. Are they really though? I mean, they are putting themselves in a good deal of danger at this point to help the allies. Yeah, no, that's true. They are. Yeah. It's this weird thing where like the movie keeps kind of telling us that Ken and Ryu are acting in a a way that, that is, uh, is worse than what they should be, that they are like good people who are doing some bad stuff. But it's that kids movie thing where like nobody's really allowed to be that bad. None of the characters that are supposed to be good guys are ever really allowed to be that bad. Even, even though, you know, they're supposed to be on like kind of this redemption arc. It doesn't ever really totally work here because Ryu and Ken are never that bad in this movie. They are at worst, as you said earlier, a little bit selfish, maybe. Yeah. Like that, that is the absolute worst that they ever get. And we'll, we'll talk about that a lot more in the, in the next scene here, but, uh, we still have a lot more of this scene to go. So Bison and Sagat are finally talking business. Uh, Bison offers Sagat a piece of the country, saying that he'll have some sort of ruling position once Bison takes over, though uh-huh. Sagat is not terribly interested in this offer, as he isn't even really convinced that Bison's actually going to win. No. Um, he wants to sort of hedge his bets a little bit, just in case uh, Bison doesn't. He wants money! Yeah, he wants to, he wants 
wants that cash wants the moolah he wants to see the color of bison's money yes my favorite backstreet boys song yep. yeah yeah <laughs> bison uh Shows him a, a trunk full of money, which uh, when he opens it, he reveals that all the money has his own face on it. It's bison dollars. This is actually, this might be my favorite bit of the movie right here, where Sagat goes, you're crazy. This money isn't worth anything. And bison responds by saying that each bison dollar will be worth five British mm-hmm. pounds <laughs> Once he kidnaps the queen right. and holds her for ransom. Yet another, <laughs> by my count, the third completely different, extremely involved scheme that Bison appears to have going in this movie. Never referenced again, but it's just a thing that he's going to do. And he's so confident that it's going to work. I, I mean... <laughs> I mean, on the one hand, I'm like, okay, you know what? He, he he's his plan. It it's got phases, and I respect that. You know, it's like, okay, look, uh-huh. first we take over this country and we establish ourselves. Then we establish a currency that we can use with the rest of the world, and we do that by kidnapping the Queen of England and forcing the Bank of London to accept our currency at the rate of one bison dollar for you know per five British pounds. I think the one flaw in his plan here is um. Is the Queen of England a good enough bargaining chip at this point? <laughs> like, she's just a figurehead, man. <laughs> like, the, the country can still function. Like, <laughs> and to Sagat's credit, that's, he's that's like, "You're insane. crazy." Oh yeah, yeah, and I mean, he's absolutely right. Like, Sagat only gets paid if Bison wins at this point, and Sagat's right, not right. having any of that. You know, so in a fit, he he throws some of the Bison bucks into a fire, uh-huh. and this makes Bison very angry. And so now, uh, Bison and Zangief and uh, Sagat and Vega are sort of facing off, and the the alliance is threatening to dissolve. So meanwhile, Ryu is gone looking for Ken, who has been tied up by Chunli, Balrog, and Ihanda. Uh, Ryu gets captured by the three of them as well. Despite the fact that they have him tied up, they said, look, we are actually on the same side here. Uh-huh. Uh, Ryu immediately recognizes Ihanda as a famous Hawaiian sumo wrestler, which is that a thing in Hawaii? Uh, it is actually. Yeah. Oh, okay. I mean, there, right. are, there, there are, there's actually at least one very famous kind of legendary sumo wrestler who came from Hawaii and became, became a very big star in Japan. So that, that is, that is not one of the movies many ridiculous stupid things um it's uh I mean, like, you know, yeah. I mean, even if it wasn't like I'd, I'd be like okay fine i'll buy that yeah, i guess sure. uh, you know but uh-huh. yeah. it, it just seemed weird but because that uh-huh. you know hawaii and sumo wrestling are not things that i would normally link but okay good good to know i learned something today so we learned that uh ihanda's career was ruined by the shadow lutong mm-hmm. uh sagat's gang somehow for some reason we don't really learn why or how but and that the same thing happened to balrog in his boxing career so you know we get some good exposition here but so what we learn from chun li later on in the movie when she is you know kind of giving her life story to bison is that she found people who hated bison as much as she did but they don't actually have a reason to hate bison specifically their beef is more with sagat at this point right yeah that's true that's true if they're Beef is with the Shadow Tong, which I think is is Bison is uh, is is Sagat's criminal organization. The movie is not super clear on the relationship between Bison and the Shadow Tong, so I that's that's 
actually kind of a problem because it it doesn't it given that so many of these characters motivations are actually wrapped up in 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 their their beef with the with the tong uh it doesn't really help that we never get a clear sense of of how this whole thing's laid out yeah yeah that that i think that might be like the least explained thing in the movie that kind of makes everything real wishy-washy in a way but in any case we just need a throwaway line about these two so that you know we know that again yeah these guys are totally fighters (laughs) y'all which is really like what that whole scene was set up to do yeah right right yeah so at this point, they release Ryu and Ken, who go back out to find that Bison and Sagat are about to come to blows and that the alliance is about ready to dissolve. And this is bad news for them because their loyalties are more to Sagat. And if Sagat doesn't want anything to do with Bison anymore, they will not get to plant their tracking device in Bison's lair to lead the AN to Bison. So I just want to say I love the the shot when they walk into the back into the tent where where the the face off is happening because the the bison side and the Sagat side are lined up like they're the freaking sharks and the jets like <laughs> yes. right in the you know with with like a with like an aisle in the middle for them to to walk right into right so like, yeah. It is it is pretty ridiculous and, and funny, but yeah. but it does give Ryu and Ken a chance to try and appeal to Bison and Sagat to not let their differences get in come between them. Sagat and Bison are not hearing any of this, and Bison grabs Ryu, and I think Sagat uh, grabs Ken, and uh, they they seem like they're just going to take the frustrations out on the two of them mm-hmm. until Ryu says, "Well, wait a minute, there there are spies here spying on you guys." Bison demands to know where they are. Ryu leads them over to the large cabinet that Chun-Li and Balrog and Ihanda had been using for their props in their little performance. As they open it, they see what I thought at first was a pre-recorded message, but actually, no, they must be actually shooting it as it's all happening. Yeah. Because we see the truck that they have just armed with explosives driving towards the tent. And at this point, this is where Zangief delivers the wonderful line, quick, change the channel, which yeah. uh, DJ gives him another great look. So the truck uh, crashes into the tent. Bison, Sagat, and all of their henchmen flee and are apparently uh, spared from the explosion. It didn't seem like a big enough explosion to get all of them, really. But uh, yeah. yeah, they would. They were they were smart to get out of there. At least some of their explosives were like fireworks that they bought at a tent, just oh, you know, that's, a that's few tents true. down. That's like true, they yeah. they bought them there yeah, at they, the bazaar. Yeah, they <laughs> robbed the spirit Halloween and loaded it all up. And yeah, that's yeah. As we look over the smoldering wreckage of the bazaar, we hear Bison's voice screaming to find Chun Li. Which uh, this was definitely something that they added in post. Then we get a whole sequence, which again, I am guessing they added in post. We see a satellite image of a satellite? 90s movies, especially movies that are in kind of like the the like real, the elevated real world sort of spy-fi sort of genre love a good like special effects tracking shot of a satellite there are several there are multiples of those in this movie and uh they are they are on point i am not entirely sure so uh, what i'm assuming is happening here is that this is meant to convey that this is all information that the an is receiving somehow right Right. Yes, I think that's what you're supposed to think. Right. And and also like a lot of plot is advancing here and we are not seeing it. We are just kind of being told 
that this is happening. Yeah. Uh, Chun-Li, Balrog, and E-Honda have now been captured by M. Bison. Ryu and Ken are being taken to the fortress, which we now know where it is, or apparently A.N. now knows where it is because they've gotten to the location with their tracking device and have been sort of accepted into Bison's army. I feel like there was almost certainly a scene here that we did not see, that they maybe just cut for time. Probably. It all just kind of happens very suddenly. It's like, we got to move this thing along. There's not that much more movie left, so uh, let's get everybody in positions. I mean, there isn't much movie left, but there's still a lot of movie left. I mean, there's there's not much movie left, but basically all the parts of the movie you would actually want to see are still are still to come. So yeah, the AN knows where Bison's base is. It's up the river. We also learned that it detected an explosion in the Shadowloo Mountains. Uh-huh. We've heard of two specific locations in the country of Shadowloo. One is the Shadowloo Mountains. The other is Shadowloo City because names are hard. Names are hard. Yeah, names are very difficult. So we know where the where the base is. It detected an explosion. Fine. How on earth has this tracking device extrapolated the fact that Chun-Li, Honda, and Balrog are now prisoners of M. Bison? It's a great question. I, You know, that's a really good question. Um, so we do cut to M. Bison's lair, where he has allowed Ryu and Ken to join him. And I guess he's patched things up with Sagat. I guess, you know, escaping an explosion together is a good way to patch things up. It's like, yeah, we're all bad guys here. It's cool. And uh, the journalists, uh, that is Chun-Li, Honda, and Balrog, are there as prisoners. Honda and Balrog are going to be interrogated, while Chun-Li has been uh, asked to join M. Bison. Well, I mean, I say asked. She doesn't really have much of a choice at this point in his uh, private quarters because he wants to interview her. He wants her to give him an exclusive... Uh, he, he wants to give her an exclusive interview. Yeah. Even though, like, she's the one who's going to end up doing most of the talking there. Really, he's interviewing her, but we'll, we'll get there. Yeah. So Zangief is going to take Ryu and Ken to get new uniforms. Which don't look like anything that the Shadowloo forces have been wearing up to this point, but it do conveniently look very much like their outfits from the game. Yes, yeah, Zangief is going to give them their Street Fighter 2 geese, but uh, again, we will get there. Uh-huh. At this point, they are still just really racked with guilt, and again, this all seems like it's going according to plan. Like, like honestly, like, even Chun-Li getting captured at this point is sort of part seems of like her plan. Seems like it serves her purposes, yeah, yeah, right, right. Y- yeah, like, the, the only thing that's maybe really, like, not what she anticipated was getting you know, E-Honda and Balrog uh, interrogated, which is going to be like, you know, E-Honda getting the, the crap beat out of him. But yeah, other than that, like she's about to get Bison right where she wants him and it gets pretty close to just taking him out. Yeah, so it's true. Um, She spits it at Ryu and Ken as if she's really mad at them, even though, again, I feel like they have done nothing but actually, like, help her and the AN at this point. Right. I, th- I think the sense is that she and Balrog and Ihanda uh, intended to kill Bison and the Bruiser crew or whatever uh, in the tent with the explosion. And because they told, because Ken and, and Ryu told them about it, they were able to escape. But they already would have been able to escape once the, the video started going. So they didn't really do anything that change the outcome of that at all yeah they clearly wanted to get bison and sagat's attention with that video they were not for some reason they were not planning to just surprise them by blowing them all up which i want to interject once one more time uh 
I mentioned before that the explosion looked like they robbed a spirit Halloween. I actually meant to say a phantom fireworks. Okay. They're very different things. Anyway. Uh, Fair enough. (laughs) I thought maybe like spirit Halloween opens like in July now to sell fireworks. Like, you know, whatever, but they're pop up seasonal businesses with almost the same logo. But anyway. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. So, yeah. So uh, as they're being led away, Ken has the, well, winds the line. This sucks. Those are good guys like us. God, Ken in this movie is just the worst. Oh, I know. I know. He's yeah. He's the Saturday morning cartoon character that would have made me roll my eyes while watching Saturday morning cartoons. He's just that bad. Um, We also get a shot of the aid workers who looks like have just been sort of left to die in their holding area without any food or anything, which I feel like makes them less valuable as hostages. So, right. Yeah, I would think we also see Bison's countdown clock, which now only has about 12 hours remaining. Oh, no. I also wrote in my notes at this point, God, there's still an hour left of this movie. (laughs) So we uh, cut back to Guile briefing the AN forces. Uh, So now that they know where the location is. He realizes that they have to attack by sea. The plan is that the fleet will attack from the north, while one single super sci-fi boat will come from the east to distract them. And of course, Guile is going to pilot that boat himself. Yep, you'd have to be crazy to drive that boat. And uh, fortunately, Bison has driven him crazy. Yep. (laughs) Uh, We cut to Bison's torture room, complete with hanging skeleton. So uh, a guy starts to beat E. Honda, who doesn't seem to react at all, no matter how hard the guy whips him or with what. Uh, This makes the torturer very, very upset and uh, causes him to leave the room after giving uh, Balrog a pretty mean right hook. Uh, As he leaves, Honda shows that actually he was in quite a bit of pain, but was very good at hiding it. As he says to Balrog, I'm sumo, brother. My body can be in one place and my mind another. Yeah, I don't know if that's really a thing for sumo wrestlers, like if that's part of their whole deal. I kind of don't think it is, but whatever. Yeah, I mean, I mean, as we've already established, I am far from an expert on sumo, so <laughs> maybe it is. Who knows? Balrog quips that the next time his mind steps out, it should order pizza. Hilarious. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's then a very weird joke that feels very out of place for this movie. You know the one I'm talking about? Oh, yeah, I do know what you're talking about. Uh, it, it's the joke that made me go, yep, this sure is a 90s movie. <laughs> so Balrog asks Honda to give him a hand as he realizes that the chains in this room are pretty rusty. And with the two of them working together, they can probably pull them off the wall. To Balrog's uh, request for a hand, E. Honda retorts, We've only been locked up a few hours, maybe next month. Yeah, so 90s movies, they just loved prison sex jokes. I'm just going to say it. Like, they, yeah. I will say, this is handled better than, like, 90% of prison sex jokes from the 90s, because most of them deal with rape. Yeah, they do. This one is a much more, like mutual thing and balrog doesn't even have like a gay panic moment he just kind of laughs no he doesn't yeah so like this is actually like like kind of better than most of those because i think they were trying to make it more tame yeah yeah i think they wanted it to kind of go over go over the heads of the kids in the audience yeah it's it is you're right it's weirdly out of place for this movie um it doesn't seem like there's anything else quite like that in this movie so yeah yeah i i was i i was like simultaneously taken aback but also just kind of like 
you know, this is a more tasteful one of those than most. So well done. Yeah, well it's done. True. But anyway, once uh, Ihanda realizes what Balrog is actually asking of him, they pull on the chains and sure enough, it breaks off, uh, freeing them, or at least freeing them from the chains. They're still locked in the room. Uh, we cut to a training room in Bison's base where Zangief is throwing Ryu and Ken's clothes in a furnace which is in the training room for some reason and will be important later. Yeah, it will actually. Won't it's it? Chekhov's <laughs> boxing room furnace. <laughs> yeah. And yes, he's uh, given them geese to wear, uh, a white one for Ryu and a red one for Ken to match their duds from Street Fighter 2. Yeah, this is the part of the movie where everybody in, that wasn't in a version of their outfit from the game inexplicably ends up in a version of their outfit from the game. Yes, yeah. Or like, this is where that starts happening, yeah. This is, yeah, yeah. Um, we also are introduced to another weird bison troop gesture that I don't think has been seen in the movie up to this point. Um, we've seen, like... Bison's basically Heil Hitler salute. Yeah, yeah. Now we're seeing the sideways thumbs up. Oh, yeah, yeah, that Zangief does at them. It's just thumb. It's not up or down. It's just neutral thumb. Neutral right. thumb from from your Bison buddies. Ryu and Ken are walking around. Zangief leaves them alone to just kind of mingle with all the other troops that are practicing in geese, which, like you mentioned, we had not seen anybody in a gi up to this no, point. No, no. So, but here they all are, dressed exactly like Ryu and Ken. Um, we also find out that they managed to, between the two of them, memorize the entire map that they saw on the video screen when Bison first brought them into the lair. As luck would have it, Ken remembered the left half and Ryu remembered the right. So between the two of them, they've got the entire base mapped out. So we cut back to Guile addressing the AN troopers, who are all... Uh, Ready to go on the attack, he's about to make a big speech at a podium as a limo drives up, and out comes an AN official. Actually, three of them, but only one of them ever speaks. Guile goes over to speak with him, and he informs Guile, uh, it, and I'm just going to use pronouns because this character is not given a name. No, he's just this this weedy little cartoon bureaucrat, basically, from, uh, from the AN. So he tells Guile, like... At the zeroth hour, where they're just getting ready to attack and where Bison's deadline is almost up, that they're just going to pay the ransom and try to negotiate with Bison instead. Guile is not happy about this because, you know, these pencil-pushing bureaucrats, they don't know anything. The cartoon man, <laughs> who's also very British. Very British, yes. Asks Guile, have you lost your mind? To which Guile responds, no, you've lost your balls. Guile then takes the orders from the man, which are um, strangely in a similar blue binder to the information Guile had on Ryu and Ken earlier. Yeah, this is how the AN does it. It's blue binders all the way down. Um, Guile starts uh, making his speech that the war is canceled, but then starts going off script. At first, the AN official just seems kind of bored by all of this, checking his watch, even though Guile's talking about how all their friends have died for nothing because bureaucrats don't understand the value of human life. Yep, yeah, but it's okay. We can all go home. Right. But but then, Guile says, uh, do you mind if I just uh, read off the, the last part of his speech here? No, please, please do it, yeah. Well, I'm not going home. I'm going to get on my boat, and I'm going upriver. And I'm going to kick that son of a bitch bison's ass so hard that the next bison wannabe is going to feel it. Now, who wants to go home 
And who wants to go with me? You did it. That was good. All the inflections, all the, that, that, that was perfect. The, the inflections were very important. <laughs> they were, yeah. No, so this whole bit is, is so stupid because it's like the, uh, this, there is never an indication earlier in the movie that like the AN has any presence here aside from Guile and his military outfit. And that, you know, there's any chance that they're going to, not go ahead with this. So this issue of the AN deciding to call off the military engagement here is only exists so that Guile can make a big heroic speech. This is so forced. It's really forced, yeah. Guile doesn't need a reason to give a, a rousing speech. They're about to go actually attack M. Bison at his base. Yeah. He could just give a rousing speech. Yeah. It's so useless. And like, if it weren't for the fact that it does serve as the impetus for Guile's speech, I would swear that like, this guy who who is like kind of a prominent character actor. Yeah, I've definitely seen him in other stuff. Uh, Simon Callow is his name. Um, I almost feel like he approached them and was like, "Well, um, my my children are just really infatuated with this video game. Do you think you could put me in your movie?" Oh yeah, yeah, sure. We'll just write a thing for you, really quick here. No problem. Yeah, like, right. That's, that's what have- I would swear happened. If it's so out of nowhere that, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And this guy, this character comes back for another, like, equally pointless scene. Yes. It's a few seconds long later on. And yeah, again, we'll get to it. It's set up to frame, like, the whole, oh, uh, you know, soldiers are smart. Bureaucrats are stupid. The same way, like, oh, hey, soldiers are smart and get things done. Journalists are lazy and dumb, you know, at the beginning of the movie. It's just that kind of garbage that really irks me. It, it, I don't know. I, yeah. I found it really, really frustrating. And and, and and the thing here is that, like, I don't I don't really get the sense that the movie is is trying super hard to, like, make this be its point or anything. Mm-hmm. It just sort of feels like there's a lot of, like, kind of received wisdom here from, like, a certain type of, you know, like, oh, well, this is just a way to make a fun conflict where where you got a good guy who's going to get things done and people trying to stop. And it's the same thing with, like, you know, cops in, in movies always being told they're a loose cannon yeah. and, you know, getting put on suspension, but they still go and and take down the the drug lord anyway. You know, it's that same kind they of thing. They still get results. They still they get results. Yeah, it's that same kind of thing. It's like it's just like you know, kind of hack Hollywood screenwriting one hundred and one stuff. Yeah, yeah. Where this is what you put in a movie because this is what you put in a movie. So all the troops uh, rally around Guile and start loading up the boats. Guile, Cami, and T Hawk start getting onto their superboat, which is labeled with Guile's name for some reason. Oh yeah, yes. The boat has a cloak anyway, so they—I guess—they they aren't meant to see it. But in any case, the bureaucrats catch up with him. The main bureaucrat grabs his orders and says, uh, "Sir, these orders," and then hilariously fumbles them and drops them into the water. He tell he asks Guile to please call off the troops. Guile says he can't do that because he just got fired because, uh, the, uh, to be fair, the AN official did say that he's going to be relieved of his command once uh, once he tells the troops that the war is over. So Guile's just a war criminal now, right? Like he's just acting. Yes. You know, yeah. Yeah, he's straight up a war criminal and not not the last time he's going to do war criminal stuff in this movie. And I, yeah. again, we'll get to it. <laughs> so one thing to say here about the boat assault, the reason why it's a boat assault apparently is because they filmed all of these external scenes uh, in Thailand. 
Yeah. And for one thing, there was a problem in Thailand at the time where they thought there might be a coup pretty soon. So they had to be real careful about where they filmed and how they got the actors around. Oh, interesting. But also because the the Thai government did not want them to use helicopters which it would have been a helicopter assault originally, but they were worried that the movie using helicopters would uh, spook the neighboring country of Myanmar into thinking that the Thai military was about to attack them and accidentally start a real war. Oh, so, so they were like, yeah, we should probably have this be a boat assault instead. Yeah. All right. Well, that's very interesting. Yeah. This movie had a wild production. I can only imagine, but anyway, so we cut back to Bison's lair on a shot of a just wonderful painting of M. Bison on a horse. Yes. So this and the Bison Bucks, I really hope those props are still in existence somewhere. Oh, I man, hope. Seriously. I hope like those Bison Bucks got distributed to just a bunch of people on you know at the shoot. Like here you go, uh-huh. here's a little souvenir yeah. for you. And I wonder who's got that painting now. Surely they didn't just destroy it, right? Oh God, I hope not. Yeah, uh, and I, I kind of hate to say this because I sound a little bit like a vulture, maybe, but like especially after like Raul Julia died shortly after making this movie, like that, uh-huh. that painting's valuable now. Like that's probably yeah, probably. So Chun Li is in Bison's private quarters, and she is basically just telling him her entire life story and why she hates him so much. Yeah. It turns out that when she was very young, before he sort of became a general or made himself a general, he led a small group of soldiers into her village. Chun Li's father was the magistrate of that village and they managed to fight off Bison and his troops. But unfortunately her father was killed in the conflict. Bison tells her that he doesn't remember any of this and he gives maybe maybe arguably the most memorable quote from this entire film. Yeah, this is the one that if nobody if you don't if people don't know any other quotes from this movie, they probably do know this one. Yeah, you may not even know where this quote is from. It is such a prominent quote, but uh, Bison says, "For you, the day Bison graced your village was the most important day of your life, but for me, it was Tuesday." great line (laughs) it's a great line yeah so yeah bison's whole like bedroom setup is incredible you talked earlier about the giant like skull fireplace that is like the bison logo Mm -hmm. there's the painting there's the hat stand that has different colored bison hats that i think are all of bison's like palette swap colors from the game yeah he's in like a bathrobe now so he's trying to i think he's trying to be seductive here but it's not working because chun li really wants to kill him Uh, She is also wearing her outfit from the games now, uh, or something a little closer to it. It's not really the outfit from the games, but she's got, you know, the hair buns and uh, she's, she's dressed in a way that, that looks closer to, to the Chun-Li character, as you know her. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm not really sure what Bison is going for here, if it's seduction or if it's just relaxing. Yeah, it is very strange. But in any case, um, Chun Li is telling him all of this, and uh, really, Chun Li's plan is that she's wanting to see if Bison is really letting his guard down, which it seems that it is. But uh, we'll we'll get back to her in just a moment. We cut back to the 
interrogator, uh, as something comes over the loudspeaker, there's a lot of, uh, quote, loudspeaker jokes in Bison's Lair, and I'm, I didn't get all of them in my notes. Sorry about that. I'll just go over a few of them really quick. At one point, they talk about uh, the hostage pit opening and closing. Please stand clear. Love that. Yeah. One is all the troops are getting shot up about their health care and that being their responsibility because, haha, only an evil overlord would deny his own subjects health care, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, the interrogator is looking for a new thing to beat Ihonda with because, boy, he's frustrated that Ihonda just didn't even seem to react at all to him beating him. As he grabs a new weapon, Ryu and Ken enter and knock him out, planning to spring Honda and Balrog. Unfortunately, as they enter the room to release them, they discover Balrog and Honda already did that themselves and are now strangling Ryu and Ken with the chains that are holding them, or well, that, that were holding them against the wall. They still think that Ryu and Ken had double-crossed them, which, you know, again, I think is debatable if that actually happened. And you know what? Hey, maybe that missing scene that I suspect exists, maybe something else happened there. Who knows? But... Ken manages to uh, to mutter a few words that uh, Balrog decides to release him so that he can hear him out. Ken tells them that, again, in very Saturday morning cartoon lingo, they are on the same side. Yeah, which uh, Balrog mishears as that they can lead them outside. Yeah. Which I don't know why, but that's a line I've always remembered from this movie. And it's not a very good or funny line, but it's always stuck in my head. Well, the... The, the jokey joke here is that uh, at first, E-Honda thinks they're saying Heil Bison or something and that they're just being fanatics. Yeah, um, right. Which uh, what he said didn't sound anything like that, uh, which is why it's funny. Then we go back to Bison's quarters with Bison and Chun-Li. And uh, we're treated to a lovely shot of a chandelier that I think you mentioned before. I didn't mention it, but yeah, the chandelier made entirely out of bones uh, another great detail in Bison's extremely good bedroom. Yeah, and there's just like a lot of little things. Like there are glass cases that have what appear to be toy robots in them. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of very strange things in this in this room. Um, you know, like hey, you know, Bison likes to have his little creature comforts. So, in any case, Chunli is now telling Bison that uh, you know she's gotten where she is, just in hopes that she would have a chance of taking him out herself. And Bison sort of scoffs at this saying, no, you just hide behind your sumo wrestler and your boxer. You don't actually throw punches and you're harmless. Chun-Li tells him that that's exactly what she wanted him to think, breaks herself out of her handcuffs, which look to be like a weird leather strappy thing that they almost certainly bought from like adamandeve.com. Right, yeah. (laughs) Um, She breaks out of this, runs at Bison, and then delivers a flying kick that is like incredibly fake looking, but also kind of cool. So there are a few times in this movie where they try to recreate actual moves from the game. Uh, they all look bad, but they all also, well, for the most part, look pretty cool. So, I mean, yeah, you can tell they were trying. Them, yeah. Like, like Ming-Na here trying, is yeah. trying to have the same look as like a Chun-Li flying kick. And, you know, sure, like, yeah. She does all right. And she just starts beating the hell out of M. Bison. Um, she shoves him into his own little drink cabinet where he'd been mixing drinks just a moment ago, smashes his head through a, a glass window or something, and um, has him really on the ropes. And it's not until she hears Honda and Balrog calling for her that she gets distracted enough to stop her assault 
and allows Bison to escape. And Bison then hits a button on the other side of his wall, sealing Chun-Li, Honda, Balrog, Ryu, and Ken in his chambers, and then releasing gas into the room. Honda helpfully yells, it's gas, <laughs> as they all start coughing. Yep. Again, like, it's a freaking cartoon. Like, it's... One of these times I want somebody to yell, like, it's gas, and somebody else to be like, what? Oh, really? It's gas, huh? What kind of gas? Do you know? Do you know? Hmm? Oh, is it oxygen? Maybe it's oxygen. Right, yeah. Bison lets out an evil laugh as his fireplace roars as all of the street fighters collapse, and then we crossfade between Bison's fireplace and just a wonderful, wonderful, delightful evil grin from uh, an evil toothy grin from Raul Julia. It was wonderful. It's a chef's kiss. It's beautiful. And this is really where like bison is just really starting to get into just like completely unhinged wacky face territory. And uh, it is a delight. Meanwhile, the assault is about to begin. Guile's special boat takes point and Swata summons the rest of the fleet because uh, he's still in this movie as well. Yep, he's here. While in the boat, we get a nice little tune from the soundtrack that uh, I might look up later. Uh, I just read that off my notes, so obviously I didn't do that. Sorry. <laughs> this is the scene where Guile inexplicably like pulls out like a video cassette and starts playing a video of him and Charlie and I guess their girlfriends or wives like having a, a nice like dinner together and and goofing around in front of the camera. And it's like, you're watching this while you're driving the boat, dude? Maybe don't. Well, it's also just like, why did you have this? Because you could not have possibly come to this country knowing Charlie was going to get kidnapped and feeling like, you know what? I'm definitely going to need like a little videotape so that I can definitely get my revenge boner on. He uh, he just likes Charlie that much. He's just, <laughs> you know, he just carries that with him just, you know, in case he needs a little pick me up. Two things I noticed about this video as well. We see the flag on Charlie's arm, I think for the first time, noting that he is from Brazil. So they actually kind of got that part right. Oh, okay. They did do that. Yeah. Yeah. Of Blanca being from Brazil. So um, also the weird washcloth things that they have under their superfluous flaps uh, are on the opposite shoulder than they had been up to this point. What the hell? Why? Yeah. Come on, guys. Figure this out. If you're going to have stupid washcloths under your superfluous shoulder flaps. That's somehow worse. (laughs) This whole sequence is just so bonkers. And also, uh, I guess Cammy and T-Hawk are not paying any attention to this because neither of them say like, hey, uh, Colonel, you want to like concentrate on driving the boat and not getting us killed? Okay, thanks. Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, It's an invisible boat. It's probably got autopilot. It's fine. Why does this boat have a built-in cassette player? (laughs) A video cassette player? I don't know. Don't know. It's a sci-fi boat. What are you, what are you going to do? So uh, speaking of Charlie, we go back to the lab to reveal that he is now fully transformed into the green-skinned Blanca we know from the video games. While no one is looking, Dr. Dalzim takes an opportunity to sabotage the experiment. He manages to play a more pleasing and calming video to replace the horrible stuff that Blanca had been exposed to. And luckily, the bar was only like halfway full, so now... Which, uh, it was, yeah, I was at 49% of evil... So, so he managed to get it before 50% of Blanca's brain was filled with evil, uh, which is good because what everybody knows, once you get to 50%, you can't go back. Yes. Yeah. So, but, but now, uh, this means that he can show Blanca videos of people getting married and dolphins and Dr. Martin Luther King. A lot of Dr. King in there. Yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, obviously is going to make Blanca 
nicer. Yes, that's how this works. Again, I I still don't quite understand what the whole psychology of this was supposed to mean. Uh, we cut back to Bison's main chamber, where Ryu, Ken, Honda, Balrog, and Chun Li have been taken captive again. I guess they revived them from the gas that Bison wasn't just planning on murdering them with the gas. He he wants them all to to watch him kill the hostages. They're uh, being strapped to a catwalk overlooking their main chamber to view the execution of the hostages. Bison tells them that if they had just worked together, they might have actually been able to beat him. But since they didn't, he ended up winning, uh, not realizing that Ryu and Ken have actually been on Chun-Li's side the entire time. To be fair, Chun-Li doesn't know this either, so somehow. Uh, back to Superboat. Uh, Guile and crew prepare to enter stealth mode, which makes the boat go faster and also covers them in cartoon electricity before they just get all Romulan ship cloaked. Yes. They use the boat's built-in Gatling gun to disable radars, which I feel like they shouldn't have needed to do if they had stealth mode. And Yeah, maybe the stealth mode is just the Gatling gun shooting all the radars before they can get pinged by him. So, I mean, this is extra ridiculous because the fact that the radars go down alerts DJ who tells them Bison like, Hey, something's going on with our radars. So Bison has their cameras that the Gatling guns didn't shoot for some reason, show them what's going on from their perspective. They just see nothing traveling through the water, but they still see the water moving, which again, I feel like <laughs> There's so many layers of ridiculous here. Like, the fact that they blew up the satellite dishes is the reason why somebody thought there might have been something going on in the first place. Yeah. And their boat is cloaked, but they can still see the water moving as if a boat were driving through it. So it's bad camouflage. Yeah. It is the most useless implementation of a make invisible mode ever. arguably an invisible boat is not really that great because you can still see the wake from it very clearly. Yes. Uh, So yeah, no, it's not good. And uh, it is almost immediately discovered by Bison who I I think then starts, uh, starts playing a little game with him, right? Well, first before he does that, because he doesn't even know that Guile is still alive. He demands that the pilot of the boat identify themselves. And then he sees Guile on the screen who says, Collection Agency, Bison, your ass six months overdue, and it's mine. And then we zoom in on Sagat, who says, Hey, you used a similar joke on me earlier. That isn't clever. Um, No, actually, he says, Guile? Alive? And then, great moment from Bison here, who immediately deduces that the whole thing was a ploy to get Ryu and Ken into Sagat's good graces. And that Sagat had been duped. He mocks Sagat by covering one eye and saying, I guess you didn't see that, did you? Yeah, that's (laughs) another great line reading um, from Raw Julia there. I loved that so much. (laughs) Um, Bison lets us know that he's not screwing around this time and summons his big floaty platform, which helpfully comes with its own loudspeaker, telling everyone to stay clear, of course. Bison gets inside of his floaty platform, which is equipped with a Street Fighter 2 arcade stick. Yep, it's like the big arcade Street Fighter 2 stick with, uh, you know, the whole map of the world in the background. And yep, it's it's lit up. It's ready to go right there. And he's using it like he's doing quarter circle punch 
to make Ryu throw a fireball or something, but what he's actually doing is deploying mines to blow up Guile's boat. Uh, Guile and crew realize that the boat doesn't have much longer because their sci-fi boat is the worst freaking super sci-fi boat in existence. That thing was worthless. They are dumb for using it. So yeah, they they bail out. The boat does does explode, and cut back to we cut back to Bison where he is. Uh, jubilantly exclaiming game over yes which only would have been better if we also heard the sound effect from street fighter 2 of a guy being knocked out going (laughs) and also this is where we get very disinterested computer voice telling him intruder destroyed that uh that computer voice actually sounds sounds pretty bummed like intruder destroyed intruder destroyed whatever it's because he's it's not even a computer it's just some lady that he's locked up somewhere and taken prisoner to to announce all this stuff to everybody so she's like oh yeah oh maybe i'm free uh, no no okay so uh we then check in with blanca and dalzim uh blanca's brain program is almost complete now and has been mostly happy images well i mean you know 51%, I guess. More than 50%, yeah, yeah. Uh, the big guy from before realizes what Dalzim is doing and throws him against the Kool-Aid cart. Dalzim manages to prevent the guard from calling security backup, but gets attacked again in the scuffle. As all of this is happening, one of them, I can't remember who, accidentally gets slammed into the door release button, causing Blanca to escape. Uh, not the first time somebody's going to accidentally fall onto a thing that does a thing. Outside on the temple grounds, Bison's troops are on patrol, getting distracted by elephants, which gives Guile a chance to move in and attack. Despite the fact that everyone has guns, nobody uses them and opts to just martial arts each other instead. Guile, Cammy, and T-Hawk easily take out several well-armed troopers. Meanwhile, in a helicopter, which I'm, as we know now, was uh, not filmed in Thailand. No, <laughs> we have our bureaucrats again. Also, I should mention, I, I think we skipped this part. As Guile pulls away in his boat after talking to them, he splashes them in a moment that, like, I am shocked nobody said. Well, I never. Yeah, that woman uh, that's with the, the delegation of people from the AN has the very, like, pearl-clutching, like, gasp expression on her face. So, yeah. Uh, we don't see them again, but we do see uh, uh, the guy who was actually talking to Guile. He is uh, assuring Madam Secretary that he managed to prevent all of the troops from leaving, that some are still back at the base. Uh, and then we are treated to a hilarious shot of just a single lone chef stirring some pots out in the square where Guile was giving his rousing speech before everybody left. Yeah. Uh, that chef, by the way, is actually the producer of this movie. Oh, really? Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah. But anyway, this scene was completely pointless, and I still don't understand why they decided to add these characters. Back to the temple exterior, Guile is asking T-Hawk about his headband. T-Hawk tells him that it's Cherokee. And why are we getting this exposition now of all times? Oh, my God. Or When I started watching this movie, I did not even realize until recently or until watching it for this that that character was supposed to be T-Hawk. Yeah, right. I mean, that's why that's the only reason why he says that is because he doesn't, you know, for probably pretty obvious reasons, he doesn't look like the T-Hawk from the game. So, like, they got to fit in a little bit of like an you know him talking about being a, a native american at some point here because otherwise he is just really like a generic military guy 
So, yeah. He's played by Greg Rainwater. Anyway, so uh, they quickly drop the exposition so that they can Metal Gear Solid their way through a group of soldiers outside the temple and get to a tunnel where they're going to lower Guile down so that he can get into the base. And here, here we get a line from Guile that was... So, okay, I, I mentioned earlier there was a little thing about the fact that there's no blood in that scene with Vega. Uh, so... Okay, this movie uh, was always made to have a PG-13 rating. That was the rating they were going for. Everybody wanted that. But uh, when they submitted the movie for approval with the MPAA to get its its content rating, some stuff had happened recently that made the MPAA very skittish about anything with violence that was directed at kids. So they gave this movie an R rating. And that immediately sent the director and the editor of the movie, you know, kind of panicking, trying to to trim the movie up so that it would get the rating they wanted it to, which meant, among other things, cutting out any instances of blood in the movie, aside from, I guess, the one thing with E. Honda where he gets whipped uh, by the torturer and uh, there's some blood on his back. But any blood got taken out. And then, you know, when that didn't really do it, they went ahead and, and got rid of a bunch of the the actual like sh- footage of, of hits connecting in the fight. So they were always kind of cutting around those. And eventually they edited the movie so much that when they submitted it, it got a G rating, which was also bad because that was not the the market they were going for for this movie. So they had Jean-Claude Van Damme come back in and record the line that he says in the scene we're talking about now where he is being uh he is he is rope climbing down uh a, a shaft into the temple and he says uh he says four years in ROTC for this which the that word was only in the movie to get it a higher rating. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. I, I was wondering about that because it, it felt like a really unnecessary line. It is. And yet it's not. In some ways, it's the most necessary <laughs> line in the movie. <laughs> the, the, yeah, I guess they decided it was. So then we go back to Bison's Lair, where a different news reporter is using his position to just outright plead with Bison not to kill the hostages and to return his news team as the counter starts to wind down. Uh, that news anchor, by the way, it, um, Sander Vanacore, was an actual news anchor who was sort of transitioning into acting at this point. So he's essentially playing himself here. Oh, okay. As an as a actual huh. news anchor. So uh, as the countdown timer reaches zero, Bison instructs DJ to check his account balance. And uh, it's a great, <laughs> great little sequence here where DJ, I guess, logs into his bank account from the terminal. The bank account reads zero with a fun accompanying video game sound effects like a little buzzer eh, eh, eh. uh-huh uh dj tells him the money's not there actually just says hell no i believe and bison prepares to kill the hostages we cut between a few scenes in which guile gets into the base via the tunnels and bison starts to open up the hostage pit guile enters bison's lair via the lab which has been destroyed by blanca who then attacks guile Guile recognizes Blanca as Charlie and starts to remind Charlie who he really is. And Charlie starts to remember. And as he does, Charlie is devastated by what's happened to him. He begs Guile to help him, and Guile, in a pretty 
cold and kind of heart-wrenching moment, Guile picks up his pistol, he aims it at him, and he tells Charlie he's going to help him and then make the person who did this to him pay. He closes his eyes and looks away as he's about ready to pull the trigger on Charlie, but before he can, Dalsim steps in, telling him that he has no right to kill Charlie. That I was just going to say, that scene to me feels weird in this movie as well. It, it does, like, yeah. That, that, it, like, it's like nothing else in the movie is going for that kind of heaviness that 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 scene is so yeah it's very strange how it comes up and then just sort of goes away we cut back to bison who's uh threatening the hostages implying that blanca is going to be the instrument of their demise then we then cut back to guile and dalzim who uh dalzim is telling guile what happened and how he did what he could to preserve charlie's mind while the other scientists did this to his body as dalzim is explaining all of this to guile the ceiling above the chamber where blanca had been begins to open. Dalzim realizes that Bison is summoning Blanca and is about to use him to kill the hostages. We cut back to Bison as Blanca's chamber rises from the floor. As the door opens, Guile pops out instead, delivering a flying kick to Bison. He literally just like flies out of the smoke and it, 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 in, in a flying kick uh, across the across the room yeah it is like less believable than chun li's flying kick and somehow less cool yeah yeah um guile then pushes buttons on a console to release chun li and ryu and the rest so that they can join the fight as well as starts closing the hostage pit as bison orders his troops to just shoot the hostages fortunately the pit closes before any of them are able to get a shot at them at this point guile is a war criminal for the second time as a completely unarmed person who is part of Bison's entourage starts running away. Guile throws a knife into his back, killing him. Yep, that definitely happened. Pretty sure you can't do that to an unarmed person, even if they are with the bad guys. He was running away. Yeah, and he was running away. He was unarmed. Like, just let him run away. He, he was yeah. unarmed. He was not a soldier and he was running away. Yeah, yeah, that's. So, yeah. Great, great job, Guile. So not only does Guile commit another war crime here, but he also causes the man to fall onto another button that causes a base-wide red alert. Uh, meanwhile, Cammy and T-Hawk are being attacked outside and have to hold off Bison's troopers. Ryu and Ken are ordered by Guile to rescue the hostages, while E-Honda takes on Zangief, because they're both big, and it's going to be funny watching two big guys fight. I love, I, I really love the fact that this movie that is based on a fighting game series thing that is known for being pretty much entirely fights has almost no fighting for the majority of its run. And then at the very end just kind of pairs off everybody and has them all fight at the same time. This is just the part of the movie where it actually becomes street fighter. Sagat and Vega watch Ryu and Ken running off and decide to cut their losses and settle for revenge against the two of them, because they're real mad about the, the whole deception thing. Meanwhile, the AN troops have started arriving to back up Kami and T-Hawk. Zangief and Honda fall through the floor, which is very clearly just like rubber in the one spot where they fall through. Yeah, that's such a stupid moment. Like, there's just like this weird hole in the floor for them to fall through. Yeah, like, I think the effect was supposed to be like, haha, they're so big, they just crash through the floor when really yeah. it's just like oh they they just went through this weird little trap door here for some reason also something that's going to come into play here in a moment that i don't think i brought up there's a giant bell hanging above the hostage pit 
I mean, I think the only reason why it's there is because that's in the background of Bison's stage in the game. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, like, yeah, it's there, though, and it's never referenced by anybody. I guess that maybe you're supposed to think, like, that was part of what was originally here in the temple, right? Well, or something, it, well it's, or... it's going to it is definitely going to come back. Yeah, I, I would assume that it's probably something that was in the temple that Bison just, you know, decided like, oh, hey, this looks cool. We'll we'll leave this here. But it it is actually going to come back here in a moment. That's that's why I mentioned it. Uh-huh. Firefight ensues between the AN and Bison troops. DJ and Bison frantically look for Blanca as their computer and security systems start going haywire. They manage to pick up a feed of the lab showing Blanca attacking Bison's own troops. Bison then realizes that Blanca's cerebral programming had been tampered with as he sees a video of a child chasing a puppy yeah. and gets very mad and punches the monitor. Uh, more action sequences as the various good guys run around knocking down bad guys and AN troops advancing on Bison's explosions and pew pews aplenty as uh, T-Hawk and Cammy get in a few good licks, although I'm fairly certain they each get in one good lick and the video footage is just used several times. yeah. Um, a lot of just like little inconsistencies, which, you know, I, I think is just coming from the fact that like the editors just kind of had had so much footage and just needed to sort of cobble together a semi-coherent fight. Pretty much, yeah. You see a lot of people getting punched who were just knocked down by the person in the shot before, but, it, you know. It, yeah, the, the actual footage of fighting in this movie is across the board terrible, but this is the worst of it. Yeah, definitely. As things get more explodey, Ken starts to question the mission, figuring that they've done all they can and that with the real soldiers entering the battle, he and Ryu no longer need to stay there. Ryu, however, decides that he's not just going to leave everybody hanging and he's going to continue fighting. They argue about this, ending with Ken, again, just whining like a child. I don't understand. And Ryu saying, I know you don't. Guile gets ready to take on a dozen armed troops with a knife when Cammy, T-Hawk, and several other AN troops come in for backup. Guile shouts that Bison is probably hiding, to which Bison responds and says he has no reason to hide from Guile. He then swings over to the catwalk that Guile is currently standing on with just a completely, again, just wonderfully deranged look on his face. And he and Guile decide that they're going to settle this mano a mano. T-Hawk urges Guile not to do this as this is just what M. Bison wants. Guile tells him that this is what they both want. Guile and Bison call off their respective troops, telling them to leave them alone, and they all do so. Guile starts the fight with a getting in a good punch to M. Bison and also getting in a great flex with his wonderful American flag tattoo. I don't did they shown the tattoo before this point? Because I this I feel like was my first time that I recognize noticed that it was there. I think this is the first time we see Guile in his tank top, so okay, I, it probably yeah. is. I think if they had I think they should have gone for like to be really game accurate and had like a, a palette swapped version of the flag on his other shoulder but uh yeah yeah meanwhile sawada and some of his fellow japanese an troops discover a monitor through which they watch zangief and honda fighting on top of bison's model like they're kaiju monsters rampaging through a model yeah. city complete with godzilla sounds yeah those godzilla sounds are in there for some reason um yeah that happens this is also where like i think sawada throws the one punch that he actually gets in in this movie which like he was in this movie because he was a martial artist right yeah he was he was a martial arts like action star and uh this is the only 
bit of what you could nominally call action that he does in the movie. This is also where he speaks in his native language and we see subtitles, which makes me think like, okay, you can do subtitles. Why was almost all of the dialogue in this movie in English? This, this movie that's supposedly taking place in Southeast Asia. Why not just subtitle? It's fine. It's fine. Guile and Bison are now fighting on Bison's floating platform. Bison is beginning to get the upper hand until he tells Guile to do better, and Guile obliges by slamming Bison's head into the giant bell. And also, this whole sequence is done in fast motion. Yes, it is, yeah. You can tell that they sped up the video. One thing we haven't really talked about while discussing this movie is that Raul Julia was pretty sick when they were filming this stuff, and actually, part of the reason, honestly, part of the reason why a lot of the the martial arts in this movie as a whole does not look great is because they, they ended up having to film all the stuff with the martial arts first because Raul Julia was not really available for that because uh, he was still recovering from chemotherapy and he had to, to get kind of better before they could film with him. Uh, so they didn't really like do a lot of fight training for the martial arts fights, but Bison does have to do some fighting in this part of the movie and I'm betting that they probably took things pretty slow and gentle and then just tried to to speed things up to make it look more dynamic. Uh, it doesn't really work. Yeah, though I'm surprised they wouldn't have just used a stunt double for this sequence. Yeah, right? Yeah. Especially since we don't really see Bison's face in this sequence all that. God, maybe they did then. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, oh, also, Chun-Li and Balrog had been told by Guile to also go rescue the hostages, but in a different conversation than when he told Ken and Ryu to do that. He's going to give Ken and Ryu back their passports if they can find the hostages and get them out, uh, which is the first time we actually find out that he's using their passports as leverage to keep them on his side. Yeah. Uh, again, good guy. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But back to Chun-Li and Balrog. They're beating up some dudes in the locker room, demanding to know the location of the hostages. Uh, Balrog punches one enemy after a wind-up that seems to have a cartoon running sound effect associated with it yeah it they do some real weird things with sound effects in these sequences uh they demand to know that the location of the hostages from the person that balrog just punched but before he can answer we cut away because you know he's just an extra he's not sag you gotta pay him more if they talk so yeah guile continues kicking him bison uh they're both on the ground now uh i don't know if we actually see them go from the platform to the ground this whole sequence is there's so many cuts and we transition from between so many different fights. It's hard to keep track of, but this is the scene in which Guile does his cool somersault kick from the game twice on Bison, who mm-hmm. gets knocked up against the wall. And then we, we visibly see that wall shake like it's a Monty Python sketch set or something of uh, Guile uh, throws Bison into a computer panel, electrocuting him and presumably killing him. Guile grabs a radio to let Cammy know that Bison is dead and Cammy briefs him on the situation. There's still fighting happening, and they haven't found the hostages yet. While this is happening, Bison's suit begins to revive him because it has CPR and EADs and... Gives him a shot of adrenaline in the heart. Yeah, all of that. So uh, gets him back on his feet. And uh, apparently nobody told Jean-Claude Van Damme when he's actually supposed to suspect bison is getting back up because his voice Uh starts trailing off way too early in this conversation but Uh 
Look, Jean-Claude Van Damme's an action star, Raul Julia's an actor, and boy, do you see the difference between those two things in the sequences where they're on screen together. Bison now has Force Lightning, for some reason, and blasts Guile away. Mm -hmm. Uh, While all this is happening, DJ, who's just decided he's had enough of all of this and is not going to stick around and face defeat with Bison, as Bison was suggesting in an earlier scene... He sneaks into Bison's quarters and grabs a giant box of money, lamenting in a very (laughs) ADR'd line that he never should have left Microsoft, which um, I worked at Microsoft (laughs) briefly. Debatable. Uh, Ken enters, also looking for a box of money, which he should not know is was in there in the first place, but uh, whatever. He decides to look for something else instead and finds a gold statue, which he decides he's going to pawn that once he gets topside and survives all of this, if he does. He then checks a random monitor, looking for a way out, and sees a very convenient shot of Ryu going down a hallway. The shot is extra convenient because he can also see an adjacent hallway in which Sagat and Vega are lying in wait to ambush Ryu. He tries to call over the intercom to Ryu that it's a trap. Apparently that's not how that thing works. And you know, with all the intercom humor, I'm surprised they didn't do anything there. Like Ken tries to say something to Ryu and then we just hear something like a, so did you say you wanted fries with that? Or, you know, like something like that. Oh yeah. That would have been totally on point for this one. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Ken decides that he's going to go after Ryu and uh, help him fight off Vega and Sagat. So back in that scene, Ryu is now apparently in this, the room where Balrog and Chun-Li just were, but aren't now. Vega goes in to attack him. Vega then says his first line of this movie, where were we? Uh, meanwhile, Guile is on the ropes as Bison tells him about his nifty new technology and begins to levitate, flies at Guile in what's likely meant to be a Psycho Crusher attack from the game. He uh, body slams Guile a few times, <laughs> flying towards him through the air. Uh, we cut between Ryu being double teamed by Vega and Sagat and Guile being knocked over by M. Bison's repeated Psycho Crushers. Check in with Ryu again, and hey, Ken joins the fight now, so now we've got... Two versus two, making it a fair fight. Ryu throws a kind of Hadouken at Vega? Sort of, you know. It makes the screen flash. It's obviously meant to reference a Hadouken, but it's not really a Hadouken. No. Uh, While uh, Ken and Sagat just kind of play with one of the training bags. Pretty much, yeah. It's not much of a fight. What might be the lamest fight scene in this movie. Yeah. Vega manages to get the upper hand against Ryu pinning him against the wall, and as Ryu struggles to keep Vega's claw from digging into his face, he manages to slam Vega's face, which is covered in a metal mask, against the furnace that Zangief used earlier in the movie to dispose of his clothing. Uh, This causes Vega's mask to heat up and burn his face. As uh, Vega recoils, he removes the mask and covers his face and just has this great look like, what the hell, bro? What'd you do that for? As all this is happening, uh, Ken hits Sagat in the balls because, again, Ken is a child in this movie. Yeah. Uh, before uppercutting him in what's, I guess, meant to be a kind of Shuryuken that, you know, like, mm-hmm. he doesn't even leave the floor to do. Yeah. Uh, Ryu and Ken manage to take down Vega and Sagat, respectively. Ken decides to leave his statue behind with Sagat, saying, I owe you. If I never met you, 
I might have become you. Which I think suggests that Ken has much too high an opinion of himself. I don't think <laughs> Ken was ever on track to become the like head of a whole criminal syndicate, even in the best of circumstances. The fight between Bison and Guile is still happening. Uh, boy, they they sure did draw that one out. I forgot how many cuts away from that. Oh fight yeah, yeah. We have to do before we finally get the conclusion of it. Uh, but Bison is still just kicking the crap out of Guile at this point, comparing himself to a god and spouting Bible verses at him, I think. Yeah, it's it's a lot of really grandiose, over-the-top, over, over the top, you know, stuff. And it's, uh, you know, it's it's as most of this movie is, it's peak Bison. So Bison makes one more dive at Guile, but this time Guile's ready for him and kicks him right in the face, which sends him flying backwards into his wall of monitors. Bison is electrocuted yet again and seems to be finally defeated. Meanwhile, Balrog, Chun-Li, and Kami find and free the hostages. Honda starts doing his hundred hand slap against Zangief, because we needed more moves from the game. Which looks terrible, by the way. Yeah. Like, that's the worst looking of any of the attempts at actually doing a move from the game. That's the worst one. And that should have been the easiest one to do. Yeah, but uh, yeah, they did it badly, though. Very badly. Chun-Li runs by Zangief and Ihanda and tells Ihanda that they need to go. They've got the hostages now and are heading for the the entrance of the base. The exit, yeah. Mm. Also, as the hostages are being freed, Chun-Li wipes a few tears away from her face because she's just so darn happy to have found those hostages. All of them run away. Zangief yells after Ihanda, calling him a coward before seeing DJ, who's got his big old trunk full of money. Zangief asks him why he's out of uniform, and DJ tries to smack some sense into Zangief by telling him that they've been the bad guys all along. Zangief is very surprised by this and asks DJ why he would have gone along with all of this if he knew that they were the bad guys. DJ says it's because he was getting paid a lot of money. Zangief is surprised by this as well as he never got paid. He was he was he he was a true believer, but not in any of the actual stuff Bison was saying. Because if you listen to any of that, you know Bison's really really evil but yeah he, he was a believer not an understander <laughs> yeah that's true guile goes back for charlie as ryu and ken reach the exit and direct the hostages to safety uh chun li takes a little verbal swipe at cammy over her pigtails uh cammy responds uh look who's talking as uh, i guess M. Bison dressed her up and did up her hair without her knowing what that seems to be the implication. Yeah, that's uh, incidentally, though, incidentally, though, the pigtails would actually be a perfectly decent way of keeping your hair contained if you were in a fighting situation. I like there's nothing wrong with the pigtails. I eh, I actually feel like the, the pigtails are a little obnoxious that like Chumli's buns are like keeping her hair up and out of the way. Uh-huh. And you know what? Like, OK, I'm just going to say it. Cammy looks like a child, okay? She looks like a child in her weird pigtails. I mean, it's not a good look. I'm willing to say that. <laughs> but hey, it's it's fairly functional, I think. That's a conversation. Just as the door to the exit is starting to come down and seal them in, Zangief makes a face turn and holds the door open. Also, he's managed to get outside before them somehow. Uh, as all this is going on, DJ finds another escape hatch and leaves with his money, although uh, not before Sagat finds him, telling him that he's going with him. And I guess Sagat just friggin' left Vega to die, I guess, because the whole base is now about ready to explode. Guile finds Charlie, but uh, 
As Charlie's now been transformed into Blanca, he refuses to leave, saying he can't go back, not looking like he does. Dalsim is there as well, and for some reason looks like like you were mentioned before. Yeah, somewhat more like Dalsim from the game. He's he's bald now, he's lost his shirt. He's also got like a little bit of blood on his forehead, which kind of matches the face paint that Dalsim has in the game. Yeah. Just, just ever so slightly, which is a thing that they also do with Honda after his fight with Zangi. Right, yeah. It is not explained why Dalsim looks so much different now. I My thinking is like maybe when that guard threw him into the cart with the chemicals that he got hit with the chemicals. Uh, I guess. So, so in the article in The Guardian, the actor who played Dalsim mentioned that like he absolutely did not understand anything about this movie like he was so (laughs) confused by it all the way through and that like apparently at one point they they spent like a whole day putting like a bald cap on him and then putting like a wig on over that for a scene where he rips all of his own hair out oh um which that scene's not in the movie but presumably that scene showed the like extreme transformation that this guy undergoes but yeah i don't know i don't know if that would have actually made things any better here or not but apparently it existed that is so bizarre dalsim tells guile that um he's staying behind with charlie that they're both accepting their fate that he feels that this is the only way he can atone yes yeah this is the only way he can atone for uh what he's done to blanca guile's just sort of like all right, cool, and leaves as the lab is beginning to blow up, along with the rest of the base. So for someone whose primary motivation was saving his friend, sure doesn't seem all that interested or broken up about having to leave him behind here. Well, now his friend's green and got werewolf teeth, so, you know, can't do anything for him now. It makes very little sense to me that, like, Guile doesn't get them out or, like, convince them that, like... I know. And it feels just counter to the the tone of the movie. Again, like, this whole thing that's like, well, Blanca's gonna die because he's a monster now. As a result, like, Blanca and Dalsim are two of the very few characters, actual Street Fighter characters, who don't make it out of this base alive. As the uh, base is starting to explode, we see everybody escaping. Sagat and DJ are swimming away via uh, some other tunnel, I guess. The AN troops lead the surviving bison troops and scientists away. Uh, Sagat, who is now shirtless and sporting a chest scar, which we never see him get, I guess they decided they just needed it because Sagat has one in the game, opens up the box containing all the money as DJ tells him to be careful as that's his severance pay. Uh, the Street Fighters who make it out are all in mourning because it would appear Guile didn't make it out alive. Uh, so they're all mourning Guile's death for a second time. Although I guess that's not entirely true since T-Hawk and Cammy knew about the plan all along before. Uh, Zangief, who has never met Guile at this point, <laughs> calls him a brave man. But then moments later, oh hey, it turns out Guile's fine after all. He runs through the the smoke and the wreckage yep. and tells Cammy that he needs a vacation. He then tells Ryu and Ken that they've earned their passports back, but Ryu and Ken have decided that they're going to stick around and help the country rebuild. Which, like, they should still take the passports, though. I mean, they might want to yes. leave at some point. They should have the passports. They, they tell him that, that he can keep them, but I think it'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, we're going to stick around for a little while longer and help out with the recovery effort. But uh, yeah, maybe definitely give us those passports back, please and thank you. Uh, Guile then um, has his first and only interaction with Zangief, 
who is giving him his sideways thumbs up. Guile teaches Zangief how to do thumbs up the correct way. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, a weird thing about Zangief. So, like, when we see him in the tunnel talking to DJ, all of his scars are very clearly drawn onto his body in Sharpie. And here they actually look more like scars, like somebody did a proper makeup job on him to make it look like he's got the scars on him that he has in the game. Yeah, yeah, that's weird, huh? Yeah, I guess because of the lighting, they just figured, well, we need to have scars on him and this is the only way they'll show up. So right, right. hang on, we're, we're going we're gonna to use this black permanent marker on your, on your skin if that's okay. Um, meanwhile, DJ and Sagat realize that the money that they got was just the worthless bison bucks. Uh, DJ is, is very despondent while Sagat is just sort of throwing the money around, laughing maniacally. Uh, Chun-Li asks Guile if he's ready for an interview now. Uh, Guile says, only if she wears that dress. Uh, yuck. That's such a... Uh... Yeah, I was really worried that they were actually going for, like, sexual tension here and that there was going to be a kiss. I mean, it looks like they're about to kiss. It does look like they're about to kiss. I am glad they didn't actually do that, but this is still not great. Yeah, it would have been completely unearned. It's like all of their interactions have been negative. Like, Jun Lee still has no reason to think that, you know, Guile's, like, yeah, a sure. decent human sure, being. Sure, sure, sure. Anyway, the base makes one final explosion. And Guile, Ryu, Ken, Chun-Li, Kami, T-Hawk, Honda, Balrog, Zangief, and for some reason, Swada, <laughs> all make their victory poses from the game as we freeze frame and roll credits. Uh, the first credit singing for Raul, Yeya, Con Dios. And that's the movie. Yep. That's the movie. Well, that's almost the movie. Save for an after credit sequence where they really wanted to sequel bait this thing. We see Bison's hand pop out of the wreckage. As the computer asks him what he wants to do today, he selects the world domination option. But sadly, we will never see what came of that. Uh, this movie, I imagine, flopped and they were not interested in making a sequel. The movie actually did not flop is an oh. interesting thing. This movie made like three times its budget. Wow. Which means it was actually pretty profitable. Nobody liked it was the thing. Um, it got pretty bad reviews and People who were fans of the game didn't really seem to like it very much. This movie was actually remarkably successful in comparison to the Super Mario Brothers movie, which was a legit flop. But yeah, that sequel, that sequel tease, they left it off of the theatrical version of the movie out of respect for Raul Julia, but they put it back on with the home video release. Okay, so was... Raul Julia's passing the reason that they didn't do a sequel or was it just because the the movie was so panned? Um, It was probably a combination of both, but I feel like there probably would have been a little bit more thought about doing a sequel if Raul Julia was still alive and in good health. That's my guess anyway. Yeah. But it's sort of, I, I think it was probably sort of a thing where like, you know, much in the same way as like Batman and Robin, uh, which was a movie that was actually incredibly financially successful, but was so widely disliked that it sort of killed the Batman movies for like almost a decade. Yeah. Probably there was not a huge desire to make a sequel to this just because. Yeah. You, you can only trick people into going to the theater once with that sort of thing. You know, the follow up to a really bad, really successful movie often just craters, basically. So 
that is a weird note to end the movie on, considering that the character they've teased with coming back is played by an actor who, who you know, the movie is also dedicated to the passing of. Yeah. So, yeah. It is pretty strange. And I mean, like, honestly, I mean, as we've said, Raul Julia is easily the best thing about this movie. I mean, he makes this movie what it is. I think that very few people would actually care about this movie beyond just it being like a footnote for the the game series uh if if not for raw julia well so i guess we're about to wrap things up here um so yeah let's say like out of five stars what do you think you would give this movie uh i give this movie three sideways thumbs up out of five (laughs) stars it's a campy good fun time it's also not a very good movie and parts of it are frankly really tedious to watch I mean, we're talking about a movie here where most of the characters exist to do one or two things in the story and also to all show up for the big combined fight scene at the end. Mm -hmm. So there's a bunch of characters who just sort of stand around for a lot of the movie, not really doing anything. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, the movie has a a really light, sort of fun, comic booky tone. Uh, Raul Julia is legitimately great in it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's just got so many bizarre touches to it that, like, I don't get why they were done, and I'm not sure that the people who made the movie could tell you why they were done either, but it's a good time if, as long as you come into it with the right mindset, I think. I think I would give this two kool-aid iv bags out of five okay i I think you know one you know it is pretty campy fun um you know and i'd probably give it two for that but the political stuff kind of turned me off a a lot more than i was expecting it to it's not great i mean i'll admit the political stuff is not great yeah it it just kind of took me by surprise because i really didn't remember just like how bad that was um and then you know a a star for raul julia just for for being just just a lot of fun to watch in this movie. You know, I, I do wonder, like, because it seems like they hired a lot of these people based on the fact that, you know, some of them were martial artists and whatnot, like given that none of the martial arts in this movie were all that impressive, mm-hmm. if they maybe had just hired more actors, like not big name actors, cause the, the movie wouldn't have had the budget for that, but you know, just people who had the chops to kind of, and the desire to be up at, Raul Julia's level, or at least, you know, try to attain that, uh-huh. this would be a much more entertaining movie. And I mean, it does seem like a lot of people just d- didn't know, like, this was sort of a fly flying by the seat of your pants kind of production. And, you know, but uh-huh. it's a really fascinating thing. And, uh, yeah, not going to say it's great, but there are some really legitimately entertaining things about it. So. And uh, I think that's going to do it for us. Did we have anything else to close on? Or uh... No, I, I think that's it, really. If we do more of these, which, you know, this is just kind of the pilot for this right now. If we do more of these, uh, we'll, we'll probably rank the movies. So right now, this is our uh, best and worst movie, I guess. Number one video game movie of all time. And uh, also number one video game movie of all time. Yep. All right, folks, that is going to do it. Thank you all so much for listening. Until next time, I'm Steampunk Link. I'm Emmy Zero. I don't have a closer for this. (laughs) Game over! There it is. (laughs) 
Our intro-outro song is How Now Brown Cow by Technoaxe, who very generously offers a ton of great music for free and royalty-free at technoaxe.com. That's T-E-K-N-O-A-X-E dot com. Colonel Guile, deliver these instructions to your troops, and then consider yourself relieved of your command. It is not true. It is bull... I am not relieved of my command. I am not. Oh, hi, Mark.